Welcome, everyone, and I want to thank all of you for joining today's hearing. The committee will now come to order. After brief opening remarks, uh, members will receive testimony from our witnesses today, and then the hearing will be open to questions. Good morning. I'd like to make uh, my opening statement, and first I want to thank our House Agriculture Committee staff for pulling together this important and historic hearing. And I want to thank each of my committee members and, of course, our witnesses for appearing today before the committee. Now we are holding this very critical hearing to discuss cattle markets, concentration in the meat packing industry, and uh, may I also remind everyone to mute yourself and uh, so that uh, we don't have noise interference. Uh, we're holding this critical hearing very important, to discuss cattle markets, concentration in the meatpacking industry, and allegations that the big four meatpackers have partaken in unfair practices that have driven down prices for cattle producers and left distorted markets. Now, the one point I want to make up front is that I, as chairman, am coming into this hearing with an open mind, and I hope and I'm sure that my colleagues on the committee are too, because hearings provide us with opportunities to facilitate open discourse and get public answers to some very difficult questions. And I do not have any foregone conclusions on the subject of today's hearing, but I am alarmed at the serious allegations that are out there and concerning stories about what has been happening in our packing industry. So my goal for this hearing is to get answers to those questions and have the packers speak about these allegations. <coughs> Since the 1980s, we have seen a steady increase in the concentration in the packing industry. And this consolidation has coincided with a steady decrease in the number of cattle ranchers over that same period. In one analysis that I read, the authors noted that over a half of a million ranchers have gone out of business since the 80s. This threatens the food security of our great nation. 
The average is out to about 17,000 cattle operations a year. This statistic is highly worrisome. And it is a direct and an alarming threat to our nation's food supply, our nation's food security. And the family cattle farmer is an essential part of our country and its food system. And this hearing was inspired by what has been happening to those family cattle farms. And the purpose of this hearing is so that we can hear what our cattle farmers have to say. And in that light, I would like to enter into the record a well-researched article from the New York Times by Peter Goodman that describes in a very impactful way the circumstances that our ranchers are facing. And it was this article, when I read it, I felt compelled to have this hearing. That's why I wanted entered into the record, and I would encourage everyone to read this article, to examine the passion and the difficulties of our farmers, our ranchers, those who produce our cattle. And so my concern is the nation's concern about these family ranching farms shutting down. And I believe this hearing will be a catalyst, a key, for turning this trend around. And that's why we're having this hearing. We on this committee want the information so that we can determine how we in Congress can play our part in this. I'm concerned that in the last 40 years, this country has lost its grip on the free market component of capitalism. Fair and competitive markets should engender opportunities for many and not just benefit for the few at the top. We created antitrust laws for a reason, and unfortunately, we have gotten away from enforcing these anti-competitive practices. And we have moved toward a system that prioritizes efficiency at all costs. I was very glad to see President Biden's administration reprioritize enforcement of competition laws through their executive order on promoting competition 
in our American economy. And I hope that this is a sign of more action to come. As we move through this hearing and examine this issue, I think we should keep in mind the idea of how competition in markets increase equity and fairness. Another issue with consolidated industry is that it can create less resiliency on our supply chains. We saw this directly during the Holcomb fire in 2019. And then the COVID-19 pandemic, when a small number of companies control an entire link in the supply chain, it makes it more susceptible to shocks and less resilient when black swan events occur. And in that vein, consolidation doesn't just hurt our ranchers. It also hurts our consumers who face supply bottlenecks, higher prices, and limited choices. Today's witnesses bring together many years of experience in the cattle industry and also different perspectives. And I thank all of our witnesses for being here. Unfortunately, we were supposed to have a fourth witness, a rancher, on our panel, but due to intimidation and threats to this person's livelihood, to this person's reputation, they chose not to participate out of fear. Witness intimidation is unacceptable. And it is not conduct befitting this treasured institution, the Congress of the United States. And I never want to hear about a witness choosing not to come before our committee because of fear again. We're looking into this. Fear cannot run our Congress. Fairness runs our Congress. Openness runs our Congress. And so I'm saddened and disappointed that we reached that point. And, of course, we will be following up with the incident. We have folks looking at it. I expect today that there will be differences of opinion, even disagreements. We're looking forward to it. That's why we're having this hearing. But I also expect civil um, discourse for our discussions from everyone. And I look forward to hearing our witnesses' testimony and leveraging the insights and solutions they offer to work towards a better future for our industry that we all care about. Thank you again for coming. We're in for a very, very important and significant moment in the history of agriculture.
in the United States. And with that, I now recognize my good friend, the gentleman from Pennsylvania, and our ranking member, Mr. Thompson. Chairman, thank you so much. Uh, I would like to say I'm pleased that we are having this hearing today. Bring a little disappointed in the way it's coming together. Um, I also want to say uh, today the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce sent a, le a letter to the chairman and I urging Congress and this committee to refocus attention on, quote, the real underlying causes, namely macroeconomic trends that include supply and demand shocks and monetary policies rather than the straw man of industry concentration or unfair practices, end quote. And I have that letter here with me. I'd like to submit that letter for the record. Sure. Thank you. Um, as I've said on numerous occasions, you know, we need to focus on preparing for the next farm bill. And while I acknowledge there has been modest progress for starting in February on, on that front, and I'm very appreciative for that, we are inexplicably veering off course today. You know, issues surrounding cattle markets are really important, and I agree with you on that, Chairman. And I think that importance is exemplified by the time that this committee has already spent exploring and debating them. Uh, we've had a productive closed-door roundtable in the matter and an insightful subcommittee hearing where we heard from a slate of esteemed economists, not to mention a five-hour full committee hearing where Senator Grassley was given a platform to promote his legislative proposal. Secretary Vilsack weighed in with his views, and we heard from a diverse array of livestock stakeholders and a Packer representative. That work culminated in the bipartisan and ultimately bicameral passage of legislation to ensure the continued availability of crucial livestock mandatory reporting data and the establishment of a cattle contract library to provide an additional layer of market transparency. As cattle markets continue on a steady trajectory, and we await USDA's implementation of the contract library pilot. I have to wonder why today's hearings was so urgent, so urgent that I you know, wasn't even consulted in scheduling it. Uh, rather, I was told it was happening as letters were sent to the Packers, uh, were drafted to send the Packers CEOs, and the, and the threat of subpoenas began to fly. And that's just not the way this committee should conduct its business. I do appreciate the chairman his opening remarks, noting his open-mindedness, and I... I uh, trust and enjoy uh, a great relationship with the chairman. And um, so I, I appreciate hearing that uh, in your comments, that op being open-minded as this hearing, as you gaveled us in. Now, I've said it before, and I think it bears repeating. If there has been collusion, manipulation, or other wrongdoing by Packers, then the law should be enforced under the existing authorities at USDA and DOJ. Absent such findings, it's time to stop demonizing the packing industry out of political convenience. And like the rest of us, the Packers are dealing with not causing the record levels of inflation that are plaguing our economy with skyrocketing input costs across the board, not to mention severe labor shortages and continued transportation and supply chain challenges. Despite these enormous obstacles, the Packers continue to provide an invaluable service and do so with incredible efficiency. We know we need greater competition. We know that, and, and I think we're committed to doing the right things to help small processors become medium, medium become large, and have greater competition. Uh, yet at every turn, this administration has obsessively pointed the finger at the packing industry, blaming them almost single-handedly for rising food costs. They've They've done so via blog posts, contrived public events, and press briefings, all without any acknowledgement of the culpability of their own reckless spending and heavy-handed regulatory agenda. Now, I fear that today's hearing is nothing more than perpetuating the Biden administration's attempt to continue that desperate, baseless narrative. Now, for generally trying to better understand beef pricing dynamics, you'd think we might benefit from having the heads of packing com companies 
beef units, uh, beef units testified today. I know several of the companies suggested that alternative and their suggestions were repeatedly denied. Perhaps a trusted economist or a seasoned market analyst uh, would be a key to that conversation. But despite a bipartisan request from several of our members, I understand that the idea was also was rejected. Mr. Chairman, I'm hoping I'm wrong, but this hearing reeks of kind of political point scoring on behalf of the administration and an effort to justify drastic, unvetted, or controversial legislative action. The, the hearing title alone suggests the decks were stacked long ago in favor of a predetermined outcome. Now, the Senate Agriculture hearing uh, yesterday served as yet another reminder of the lack of agreement on proposed cattle market mandates. So, uh, it also brought to light uh, serious questions about the, the purpose, intended scope, and the need for a special investigator legislation. So despite my concerns with today's hearing, I really want to extend my sincerest thanks to our witnesses who come here a great distance and, and expense and, and uh, uh, both producers and packing industry leaders alike and, you know, for taking the time to be with us and sharing your perspectives. Uh, looking forward to that insight and uh, intend to make the best of the situation. I look forward to what I, in the end, I, I'm, I'm hoping for will be a productive and insightful discussion. With that, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. The chair would request <clears throat> that other members submit their opening statements for the record so witnesses may be able to begin their testimony and to ensure that there is ample time for questions. Our first witness for our first panel uh, today is Mr. Coy Young, a cow-calf producer from Bythedale, Missouri. Our second witness today is Mr. Jill Stockton, who is testifying on behalf of the Northern Pains Research Council and the Western Organization of Research Councils. He is from Grass Valley, Montana. And to introduce our third and final witness for this panel, I'm pleased to yield to the gentlewoman from Minnesota, Ms. Fishback. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I am very honored to introduce our witness today, and uh, uh, Mr. Don Scheffelbein, a president of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association and one of my constituents. Mr. Scheffelbein has a long history of industry service, most recently as chairman of the Beef Industry Long Range Planning Committee. He has also held several positions on committees and the board of directors for the American Angus Association and was past president of the Minnesota Cattlemen's Association. He served as the executive director of the American Galveth Association, and early in his career, after graduating from Texas A&M University, he worked for the North American Limousin Association. Uh, Mr. Scheffelbein also owns and operates a large diversified farming operation in Kimball, Minnesota, along with his father, Big Frank, seven brothers, and three nephews. His wife of 32 years and his three daughters are also active in the industry. And thank you so much for being here today. We really appreciate it. And I look forward to hearing your perspective on all of the issues. Thank you. And I thank the gentlewoman for her comments. Now we're going to have swearing in. If all witnesses would raise your right hands. Thank you. And uh, please jointly state your names for the record. 
Now, do you solemnly swear that this testimony you are about to give today before this committee in the matters under consideration is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Thank you. Mr. Young, thank you for coming. And now I would like for you to be our first witness. <clears throat> and uh, please begin your testimony when you are ready. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, I really appreciate you selecting me to be here today. My name is Coy Young. I'm a fourth generation cattle farmer from the rolling hills of northern Missouri. I come here before you today and try to save what is left of rural America because rural America is under attack by the greed and corruption of the big four that are in question here today. The years, for years, the packing industry has been concentrating more and more with fewer, larger mega plants process our proteins. The American cattle farmers and ranchers are tired, tired of being taken advantage of and losing money year after year while watching the big four post record profits every single quarter. The Packers have manipulated the system with their alternative marketing agreements or arrangements, which was formed on captive supply, you know, with the huge corporate owned feed yards that control 87% of the fed beef in this country. AMAs have killed the cash market and competition within the beef industry, making the markets the cow-calf producers have to compete in so depressed for the times, bankruptcy rates continue to be on the rise, and we're at a 10-year high in 2019. The Packers and Stockyards Act of 1921 was put in place to protect the cattle farmers and ranchers from the very thing that's happening within the beef industry today. I ask, why are we not enforcing the Packers and Stockyards Act? Is everyone watching on the payroll of the big four to let them continue their free reign without consequence? AMAs are legalized market manipulation practices that should not be allowed and enforced under the Packers and Stockyards Act of 1921. There's an alarming number. The number is 40.27 cattle farms that call it quits every single day in this country for the past three decades because they can no longer make ends meet alone that should grab the attention of leaders in Washington that there is a problem going on here. Family legacies and century farms are being ripped out of their hands and families are losing their loved ones from an unprecedented amount of suicides. Farming and ranching has the most suicides in any industry to distress a shrinking bottom line and that's fueled by the greed and capitalistic nature that's everyday business and the big four that are in question here today. There's blood on the hands of the Packers and leaders in Washington, and no one seems to care. No one seems to want to do anything about it. I know we live in a country where capitalism reigns supreme, and it's every man for himself, but Packers take capitalism to a whole new level. We as cattle farmers and ranchers just want an even playing field and be able to raise our families and live a decent life our fathers and grandfathers did before us. Nowadays in rural America, everyone in the farming community has one, two, or even three extra jobs outside of the farm to help pay their bills and make ends meet. 
The cows no longer pay for themselves and haven't for a very long time now. I never thought I would see the day when feeding America will become a part-time job. It's wrong and it's not fair. There's enough money to go around in the beef industry. It's the distribution of profits that are proportionally unbalanced that is the problem. I know I sound like a broken record, but it's from the manipulation of the big four packers that control 85% of the beef packing industry, but they also control 87% of all the fed cattle that are slaughtered. You know, mandatory country origin labeling, also known as MCOOL, was repealed in December of 2015, which was just another slap in the face of the American cattle farmers and ranchers, which now cannot differentiate their superior product from cheap foreign beef that now floods 20% of the market in this country. The public and consumers no longer have the option to choose between our superior American-raised beef or foreign beef. Restoring MCOOL would help restore some competition to the marketplace so the consumer would be able to choose their product every time they go to the grocery store, and the consumer would drive the demand for American-raised beef. Now imagine waking up every single day and knowing that the cattle that you've birthed, fed, and raised are not going to make you any money because there isn't enough room in the rig system for the small cattle farmer to make a buck. The share of the retail dollar, the complete disconnect from the farmer to the grocer, is what's bankrupting the farmers and ranchers. With only receiving 37% of the retail dollar as the farmer compared to 60% 30 years ago, now paying 200% increases in equipment costs and overall inputs, it's a complete recipe for disaster and a losing proposition to raise cattle in this country anymore. You know, my dad always said you could sell your calves in 1975 and go to the Chevy dealership and buy a new pickup. That still holds true today. You can go sell your calves and you can still go buy a 1975 Chevy pickup. The market share that was once the cattle farmers has since been redistributed to the middlemen, the packers, and the grocers. Make all the money, and we pay all the inputs, and go, go broke raising the very product they profit so handsomely from. I mean, what's America going to do when there aren't any American family farms left to produce the most flavorful, juicy steak in the world? And that's, that's all I have. Thank you, Thank uh, you, Mr. Young. And now I recognize Mr. Stockton. There, I, I hope uh, my voice is coming through. Um, uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, members of the committee, uh, thank you for the opportunity to address you today. Um, my name is Jill Stockton. I raise sheep and cattle near Grass Range, Montana. And today I'm representing the Northern Plains Resource Council, the Western Organizations of Resource Councils, and the Montana Cattlemen's Association, for which I am president. These organizations' mission is to preserve family agriculture and the rural communities upon which we depend. I, I took over the family ranch in 1975, the same year that I graduated from Montana State University with a master's degree in animal science. My wife and I started ranching with nothing except our degrees, the generosity of my parents, and a loan from the FHA. 
But if I had to start from scratch today, it would be impossible. Uh, we are losing an entire generation of motivated, talented, and trained young and women because they cannot afford to take over the family farm or ranch. As Mr. Young has just testified, the economic realities just do not allow it. In 1975, the concentration in the beef packing industry had four firms controlling 25% of the market. Today, they monopolize 85%. I lived and ranched through the entire period that has seen the beef industry become subs subservient to a monopoly cartel. In 1975, the year I started ranching, the farm-to-retail spread for beef stood at 71.3%. We ranchers and feeders were able to retain 71.3 cents of every dollar spent by the consumer at the grocery store. In 2021, the farm-to-retail spread was 36.5%. Over the course of my career in ranching, my income has been cut in half. In terms that are very concrete, and just like uh, Mr. Young had said, in 1979, I purchased a one-ton four-wheel drive truck from the proceeds of selling 18 calves. The equivalent truck today would cost me 59 calves. Now, I don't want to give you the impression that I'm looking for sympathy. I, I've made my life, um, and it was a good life. But my concern is for my community, uh, the future of agriculture, and the future of food security for this nation. My community has, over the course of my life as a rancher, dried up and blown away like a tumbleweed. Uh, today, Grass Range, which was once a thriving small town, has only one functioning business on Main Street, uh, a tire repair shop. And there is no part of U.S. agriculture that is not to, oppressed by monopolized, dysfunctional markets. Um, and this long-standing market dysfunction was laid bare by the COVID-19 pandemic, when illness in the packing plant slowed the processing of cattle, resulting in empty shelves at the meat counter. And the packing cartel profited by buying cattle for less and selling beef for more. And I'm sure that we're going to hear here today how this is all about supply and demand. But it is also about having an entire meat production system funneled through a very narrow bottleneck where packers can exploit both producers and consumers. <clears throat> One tactic that the packers use is captive supply, also known as alternative market agreements, AMAs which are cattle committed to packers through a type of forward contract that are never competitively priced. Recent research at Georgetown University reveals that for every 1% increase in the amount of cattle procured through AMAs, captive supplies, there is a 5.9% decrease in the price. Another study from Iowa State University shows that meat packers are leveraging their market power across multiple plants, further eroding through price discovery in the cattle markets. So what's to be done? Actually, it's really not that complicated. First, pass the American Beef Labeling Act, 
It is absurd that beef and pork are the only food or manufacture items that do not carry a country of origin labeling. So thank you very much, Representatives Gooden and Kahana, for introducing this legislation. American consumers have the right to know the origins of their beef purchases, and cattle producers have the right to a fair and transparent market. Second, do what your colleagues did in 1921. Require that the beef packers buy their cattle in a competitive and transparent marketplace that they neither own nor control. This is what the consent decree that accompanied the passage of the Packers and Stockyards Act required. It was a perfectly free market, free enterprise approach, and it actually worked. Um, I see I'm running long here, so thank you very much. Um, you know, unless you, Congress acts, the American people will find themselves with an unreliable, extremely expensive food supply. So thank you, members of the committee, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Stockton, for your excellent and very informative testimony. And now, Mr. Schiffelbein. Sir. I hope I got that right. You did pretty well, sir. Thank you. Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Thompson, and members of the committee, my name is Don Schiefelbein. I am a cattle producer from Kimball, Minnesota. Together with my wife, my three fabulous daughters, parents, seven brothers, six nephews, and our spouses and children, we own and operate Schiefelbein Farms, an entirely family-owned, diversified farming operation, which includes both seed stock production and cattle feeding. Our livelihood is completely dependent upon the success of our customers, cow-calf producers from Iowa to Montana and others across the entire land. I have also served as president of both the Minnesota State Cattlemen's Association and the American Angus Association. I'm appearing this morning as the president of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, or NCBA, the oldest, largest national trade association representing U.S. cattle industry. Our direct membership of over 26,000 and roughly 178,000 members of our 44 state affiliate organizations is comprised of a wide array of seed stock producers, cow-calf operators, stockers, backgrounders, and cattle feeders. My testimony today is rooted in policies submitted, debated, voted on, and adopted by cattle producers through NCBA's century-old policymaking process. It has been said many times over, the cattle industry is home to the most complex markets on earth. The intricacies of this system have been highly scrutinized over the past years, but the fundamental dynamics at play have been consistent through times of plenty and hardship. Let me be clear, cattle producers know best what they do and do not need to do in order to be successful. I implore you to listen to what producers are telling you. The hearing focuses on meat packers. We share the committee's concern about the consolidation, but we would have preferred to discuss a host of more pressing challenges with you today. Make no mistake, curbing rampant inflation and skyrocketing input costs, addressing urgent labor shortages, and increasing market transparencies are the true immediate needs of producers. I urge you, do not let today's proceedings disguise that fact. Producer leverage with packers has been a top topic over a century. 
However, of greatest concern to NCBA is the current shortage of adequate beef packing capacity, not seen in several decades. NCBA has supported measures both in Congress and with the Biden administration to increase packer capacity. Most importantly, we have continued to advocate for those new facilities to be small, regionally focused, small businesses. Following both the Holcomb fire and COVID-19, packer capacity loss has resulted in the highest recorded spreads between box beef and live cattle. $67.17 per hundredweight and $279 per hundredweight respectfully. This behavior is rooted in basic laws of supply and demand, but given the magnitude of these price disparities, it would have been imprudent not to further scrutinize the packers. That is precisely why NCBA called upon the Department of Justice to investigate the four major packers. The results of this investigation have yet to be released, but I urge Congress to proceed carefully as we await the findings. I ask that you continue to engage with the Attorney General as he continues this investigation and hold off on crafting new legislation until a determination has been made. NCBA strongly su supports robust enforcement of the Packers and Stockyards Act and believes the Department of Agriculture has adequate legal authority to enforce it properly. We support the Biden administration's effort to streamline collaboration between the Packers and Stockyards Division and the Justice Department. But we do not believe creating a new office with the USDA is the proper way to enhance enforcement. Briefly, I'd like to address the Cattle Price Discovery and Transparency Act, Senate Bill 4030 and its House Companion, H.R. 5992. NCPA opposes this legislation. Freedom to market matters. It has allowed cattle producers like myself to respond directly to consumer needs. If the government were to erode this freedom or completely take it away, everyone suffers. I will elaborate further on these high complex issues in my written testimony. In closing, Mr. Chairman, I ask you in this committee to listen to cattle producers and address the real threats to our industry. For too long, Congress has been gridlocked by a handful of controversial policies while a host of widely supported measures await enactment. It is time to move on and focus on areas where agreement can be met. Thank you for your time to testify. I look forward to your questions. Thank you, all three of you. And your testimonies reflect why we're here and the urgency that and the critical challenges that uh, the meat industry is facing right now. And so with that, I just want to say thank you. We're going to move now to questions. And um, at this time, members will be recognized for questions in order of seniority, alternating between majority and minority members. Everyone will be recognized for five minutes each in order to allow us to get in as many questions. And again, please keep your microphones muted while you are, uh, until you are recognized in order to minimize uh, the noise. And now I want to start by recognizing myself for a few minutes here. As I said before,
this issue is urgent, and each of your testimonies express the urgency of it. Our food industry is without question our single most important industry. We can all do without a lot of things, but the one thing we cannot do without is food. And so this is why we are here. And you all have expressed the problems and the challenges. And we're here to help solve the problem, not to spread blame, but you mentioned the point about legislative action. And as I said to my friend, Senator Grassley, who came over and asked to speak with me, and we met, and we expressed our concerns. There are legislative pieces moving, but I said, let us hear from the people who have to solve the problem so we will know what we need to legislate on. And that's why I believe we're doing it the correct way. And this committee is going to take your testimonies here and the testimony of the meatpackers. We're going to put this together and be able to show and point a direction for solving the problem that is multidimensional. And so I wanted to get that all way. Let me start with you, uh, Mr. Young. As I said, the New York Times article hit me right in my heart. And when I read about your story, all I can say is, I thank God for your wife returning. And I want to hit on this, Mr. Young, because you said not only were you contemplating the suicide, but you said that there are others. How serious is this? Please express this to our committee. Yes, thank you. I mean, as we all know, 1% of the population feeds the world. And, you know, farmer suicides are 2.5% of that 1%. And that's an alarming rate. You know, there's roughly only, you know, the last time they checked in 2017, 720,000, you know, cattle farmers left. And it's, you know... We're being squeezed, pressured, and that has, in turn, caused a lot of people to not see another way out. They're so far in debt that it would take them years to get out of debt, and like I say, it's 2.5% of the 1%. This is an alarming number of, like I say, the 729,000 that were... uh, in the census in 2017. And that's all.
And uh, I just want to say, and I think your wife has joined you here as well. And uh, that is a very dramatic story. And uh, it shows us the seriousness of this issue. And now, um, I think it was um, Mr. Schiefelbein. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to get it right in a minute. You mentioned um, some things that you would like to see as far as a legislative movement in this. Would you share with us what you feel we should do as we're moving with additional legislation to address this problem? Yes, thank you very much. Uh, in Congressman Johnson knows full well there's a group of uh, agricultural entities that got together in Arizona, and we laid out a pretty clear plan on items that we thought would move the industry forward. They included things that I'm pleased that you acted upon, and that is the contract library, which was crucial. The other thing we agreed on is the fundamental support we need is more packing capacity. And I know the butcher block bill is going through Congress, but those are very, very important to the well-being of our industry. The other item that we discussed, I think it's, it's very important given the concentration that's been discussed, and that is that we have proper and effective oversight of the packers. Those are the three big areas I think that we agreed on, and to me, fundamentally, that is the role of government in solving those three issues. Thank you. I appreciate that. And now I recognize the ranking member, the gentleman from Pennsylvania. You're recognized for your five minutes. Thank you, Chairman. Chief uh, 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 uh thank you so much. Uh, got a, my, my first question here is for you. Um, I mean, I, uh, you know, we're talking about what government can do, but also it's important within the industry we look at innovation, right? I mean, there's uh, the the solutions are come from many different places. Uh, I, I'm very proud in Pennsylvania. We've got an initiative. Uh, there's a grace, grocery store. It's a moderate-sized grocery store chain. It's not huge, actually, um, but they've uh, been working with uh, uh, sort of ranchers, uh, beef uh, beef farmers, and they've actually put together uh, Carnes Beef Program, um, uh, 15 farms. Uh, it's not huge compared to some of the places where you all are from, you know, 40 to about 170 head, uh, but they're, they're working together to with this grocery store chain uh, to be able to provide uh, um, a great steak experience, right? Uh, these grocery stores, that's what they sell. And, and so they've been working together and collectively, and it's kind of a unique model. Um, uh, it's just one of probably many innovations that we need to, to see out there. Um, uh, my, my question for you, uh, my first question really was about, uh, you know, what kind of things that, uh, and you know, I think you've, you've started on that, you know, looking at are there, uh, in your opinion, are there more pressing issues or proposals that we should be working on? Thank you for the kind words for the work that we've done. Uh, we've got our our uh, livestock chairman sitting here and our livestock uh, subcommittee ranking member under their leadership. We've been able to to, to get some success. But, and you've named a few things. Is there anything additional that we should be uh, uh, focused on and spending our, our time on exploring? Well, Make sure it was on. The other thing that's awfully crucial, and again, it's the role of government as I see it. 
When people are in desperate need, that's when government comes in and provides them a safety net. Right. What you've done with the drought assistance is superb. And, and the immediacy that you provided that here just in the last week, I can't tell you how many phone calls I received saying, thank you very much. You're probably clearly aware that there is a portion of our country that is still suffering the drought, but there's also a portion just north of you, Congressman Johnson, that is dealing with a horrible blizzard. If you have not seen the photos of what these producers are experiencing, you need to get hold of them and see. And to me, providing that safety net is really a critical function of government when mother nature or things of your underneath your own control cannot be managed. Yeah, we, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we had a significant number of amount of cattle that went to market prematurely and not at the best price point, you know, because of uh, the lack of uh, feed uh, and forage uh, over the past couple of years, given the drought conditions. And um, so uh, from your perspective, what are the benefits of alternative marking arrangements to cattle feeders? And do these benefits trickle down to their cow-calf suppliers? Yeah. And again, you mentioned it just a moment ago, and I think it's important for the whole committee to hear this. Innovation is the engine that drives agriculture. Drive across this country, drive across, go to any other foreign country, and you'll see the manner in which we adopt innovation and make things better is really what drives our competitiveness. My father, who Congresswoman Fishbach mentioned, Big Frank, he gets asked a lot of questions. He says, how does your family succeed in a family of that many members, yet uh, how can you be successful? His quote that he is quoted on saying, and I think it's a lesson everybody could learn, my dad's quote is, the reason our family is successful is because we don't raise cattle the way I used to. And I want you to absorb that just for a moment. That is critical, and it plays exactly into... AMAs and new ways of doing business and new ways of marketing. We've got to evolve and you've got to allow innovation to enter your business. Well, I always appreciate uh, the, uh, the grassroots efforts of both NCBA and, and quite frankly, the American Farm Bureau um, that are able to tell Congress and the administration what producers need to be, need to be successful. But maybe more importantly, what, what they don't need. And, and so can you also share with us a, a little bit more about some of the things that, as you suggest, producers don't need that we shouldn't do? Yeah. And again, I, I listen to where government should be involved. I am a strong believer. Government, please stay out of our markets. We mentioned earlier that the marketplace is an incredibly complex situation in agriculture. I don't know how many of you recall the 1986 dairy buyout when the government decided to put its finger into the marketing place. I was a victim of that. That was the most awful disruption of beef cattle prices in the history of the beef cattle industry. And again, it's those points when you say, I know the marketplace needs some adjustment to get back into play, but the last thing we want to do is inject the government into the marketplace in a manner where we can't get it back out. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you. And now the gentlewoman from Connecticut, Ms. Hayes, who is also the chair of the Subcommittee on Nutrition, Oversight, and Department Operations is recognized for five minutes. 
Thank you so much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for hosting this hearing today. And thank you to all our panelists for being here. Um, my question, my first question is for Mr. Young. I first would like to thank you for your very moving testimony and for all of the very important information that you've added to this hearing today. Alternative marketing arrangements for AMAs arose in the 1970s and are increasingly used in cattle market transactions. The meat packaging industry has con consistently championed AMAs, claiming that they allow farmers to secure better prices with less risk. Mr. Young, cattle farming has clearly been in your blood for generations. Can you explain to us how your farm's experience with AMAs has evolved over time? Yes, I mean, I don't deal directly with AMAs because I'm not a feed yard. I raise the calves from birth, sell them at market, and the feed yards are the ones that set up the AMAs and, you know, arrangements with the packers. And, you know, it just came to my attention several years ago. I mean, they, were, they are bad for the cash market, and the cash market is what I sell my calves in. Well, if you keep the cash market suppressed by contracting, 87% of the beef, and nobody knows what the price is, you're basing the cash and calf market off of 13% of the cash market that some beef is sold on. But everything through the AMAs is directly from the feeders to the packers, and then on from there. Like I say, I raise the calves that you will consume from birth up at midnight, you know, digging in our snow banks, saving their lives, and giving you your next, next best steak. Thank you. I, I think that's very important because as we, we've been talking a lot about inflation and food prices, and I think as a committee, we have to look at every, the entire continuum. And just like you said, you know, the, the cash markets does affect that. Mr. Schiffelbein. In your testimony, you voiced support for the newly launched Farmers Fairness Portal that allows producers to submit antitrust complaints to the U.S. Department of Agriculture and DOJ at the same time. How has this system been working for farmers in the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, and do you see any room for improvement? Yes. The bottom line is when you look at it, we've asked the DOJ to do an investigation on the beef packers almost two years ago, right? Mm -hmm. Where are we today? We have not heard boo or squat. We don't know what the situation is, what the response ought to be. So what cattle producers need more than ever is answers to the questions. Is everything being done correctly? And if not, how can we adjust it to make sure things are done fairly? And to me, the laws are in the books. It's enforcement that matters and making sure we're carrying out the rules that are already in place to ensure that we have a fair market system. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Schiffelbein, one last question for you. I know there's been a lot of conversation surrounding country of origin labeling. Um, I just would like to know, in your role on the NCBA, how has that product of USA labeling system impacted the market? Well, well, it's hard to say, but the, the bottom line is country of origin labeling. I am a huge supporter of U.S. beef. I travel the world telling them how good U.S. beef is. 
The rub with country of origin labeling has nothing to do with labeling beef as made from the United States and has everything to do with the government mandating, that's what the M stands for in MCOOL, mandated country of origin labeling, where you're forcing the government to get into the marketing of your product and not the retailers or the purveyors or others who will have a cash incentive. So we want to make sure it's a market-driven innovation, and that's why uh, we're opposed to MCOOL, but we're 100% supportive of labeling beef properly as U.S. beef. Thank you. That's very helpful. Uh, Mr. Chair, that's all I have. I yield back. Thank you. And now the general lady from Missouri, Ms. Hartzler, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. As a fellow cattle producer, I, uh, I feel your pain, and I uh, appreciate you all being here today and advocating for our industry and uh, feeding the world, because that's, that's what you do. Um, I wanted to start with fellow Missourian, Mr. Young, uh, very compelling testimony. You mentioned in there that you think the Packers and Stockyards Act are not being enforced. Um, could you expand on that a little bit, please? I feel a little unprepared because I don't have it here before me, and I've read it multiple times. Right. But within the Packers and Stockyards Act, everything that's happening in the industry that shouldn't have happened is here. You know, concentration of the packing industry and, you know, the fair prices to the American cattle ranchers and farmers, you know, are not there. And, you know, everything is, the legislation and everything in that Packers and Stockyards Act has been there for 100 years, and it just needs to be enforced. Great. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate appreciate that. Um, I recently introduced with Representative Panetta, who was here a little bit ago, but the Amplifying Processing of Livestock in the United States Act, which works to fix the regulatory roadblocks to increasing meat processing capacity and allowing livestock auction market owners to invest in small and regional packing facilities. So, Mr. Schiefelbein, you discussed processing capacity and the relationship between cattle producers and meat packers. In fact, you say in your testimony that about, without access to beef processing, raising cattle would not be you know, profitable enterprise. So can you share your thoughts about the A-plus Act and ways Congress can work to increase processing capacity and competition for livestock? Yes, absolutely. And, and we are 100 percent supportive of the A-plus Act. We, we believe any time you can allow another group of individuals to come in and help add hook space, it's a good solution for the industry. And I think, you know, what we're living with, the current situation, is just an antiquated law. And a law that uh, is defined an industry much different than what it is today. And I think allowing those uh, sale barn operators to participate in owning a packing processor, provided it's small, makes a great deal of sense, and I commend you for your efforts. Well, thank you. Uh, you would think this would be a no-brainer, something that we could uh, get past fairly easily, hopefully, and uh, the chairman and others and the ranking member maybe can help support this because it just, uh, just makes sense to allow uh, these sale barn owners to be able to invest in meatpacking plants and start one locally there. Um, and last summer, I introduced the Optimizing the Cattle Market Act of 2021, which, among other things, includes the creation of the USDA Maintained Cattle Contract Library and uh, is very, very pleased to work with uh, 
uh, Representative Johnson and, and others to, to get that passed. So do you believe that establishing a, a contract library for cattle, similar to establishing the swine contract library, would provide more transparency to cattle producers in my state as well as others, Mr. Schiefelbein? Yes, well, I hope so. And that's why it's a pilot project. And that's why I actually like why I actually like the way it's played out is you can learn as you go. And we want to make sure as you carefully construct that uh, library, that's done in the right way. And, and, and sometimes the devil's in the details, right? And that's why this pilot project makes a great deal of sense in that we want to make sure that as we enlighten everybody into what the contracts look like, we don't enlighten the packers more than we enlighten the producers. So there needs to be a balance to make sure it's written correctly and make sure it's done correctly and initiated correctly so that it benefits the right people. So yes, we're in favor of it, but we the devil's in the details on the contract library. Well, I, I'm hopeful that that will be helpful. I, I think it's time to empower the cattle producer themselves to know what some of the deals are uh, that the, the meat packers are giving and uh, maybe leverage that a little bit more so they can get a better uh, deal in the process. So I'm hopeful for that. And I appreciate your comments about the DOJ investigation. Uh, I just want to say on the record, I'm very frustrated uh, with the Department of Justice in this, that it's been over two years and we've heard nothing. I co-signed a letter with uh, Representative Johnson and many others in this room asking just several months ago, the Department of Justice, can you give us an update. Uh, when can we anticipate this will be done? We just got this generic letter back basically saying, well, we can't comment on any investigation. Uh, we deserve to know as members of Congress, but certainly as cattle producers, what happened. And if there was any collusion, if there was any price fixing, um, you know, it really hurt not only consumers with these high costs, but the box beef spread that you shared, uh, those cattle producers, those of us weren't receiving uh, an adequate price. So I just hope that uh, the Department of Justice is listening and will wrap up that investigation as soon as possible so that we can have the information that we deserve. So thank you. With that, I yield back. Thank you. And now the gentlewoman from New Hampshire, Ms. Custer, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I very much appreciate you holding this hearing this morning. It's a timely discussion to have as costs of food are rising, while many Granite State families are still working to financially recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. The price of beef has climbed 16% just in the last year, and the price of bacon has risen over 18%. There are many reasons for this. And of course, many existing challenges facing food and agriculture sector were further aggravated by the pandemic, but it's incumbent upon Congress to ensure that our markets are fair and competitive. I believe everyone along the supply chain can be fairly compensated while still producing food that consumers can afford. And for me, a critical piece of the solution here is strengthening local food networks wherever possible. When consumers have access to locally produced and grown food, we foster a healthy climate for small and mid-sized farms and businesses, and we reduce the pollution from uh, the trucking of getting our food across the country, and we help to save our planet. It also helps to shrink our strained supply chains and offers greater certainty for those on both ends of the chain. In New Hampshire, we're fortunate to have numerous farmers markets and agricultural businesses that market directly to consumers. 
I was gratified to hear from producers in my state about how they're able to remain connected to their local consumers, despite the logistical hurdles that the pandemic presented. But that said, much more could be gained from cultivating more of these local food opportunities in New England and across the country, including meat processing. Growing the number and capacity of local small meat processing facilities like those we have in New England will help diversify the processing industry and reduce supply chains. I'm grateful to President Biden for his executive order last summer initiating efforts to increase competition in the meat processing sector. The USDA's new meat and poultry processing expansion program builds perfectly upon the president's goals by teeing up loans and grants to meat processors for startup and expansion operations. For New England livestock and dairy farmers facing long wait times at meat processing facilities around the region, this new capacity will be most welcome. To that end, I'm also proud to be an original co-sponsor of Representative Pingree's Strengthening Local Processing Act, which would support meat processing training and incentivize state inspection programs. By taking a holistic approach to building out our local meat processing capacity, I'm convinced that we can help reinforce our food and ag sector for decades to come. I appreciate the opportunity to say a few words, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. And now the gentleman from California, Mr. LaMalfa, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I appreciate uh, being able to have this hearing today and to hear from our cattle growers who face so much so much turbulence these days here and uh my understanding is they were asked they were told to swear in before this committee today the, the cattle growers here mr chairman yes that seems kind of that's correct that's kind of unprecedented to me what was what was that about it's very important that we do that yeah for this critical hearing all right. Well, I, and we will be doing it for the second panel as well. Okay, I understand. I just um, I know many of these folks in my home district, and they don't need to be sworn in. I trust them, and I know they're going to give good testimony. And in the case, very heartfelt testimony. And we talk about their struggles and even suicide rates, is what Mr. Young had mentioned there. So I I, I hear you loud and clear, Mr. Young. And uh, I'm, uh, like 75 Chevys were available back in, you know, 45 years ago, and you still have to buy them now. I'm fixing up an old 74 F-250 just to make things a little better around my place and looking at my 77 Model 8630, I need a 619 engine for it because uh, $600,000 combines and $350,000 tractors doesn't really pencil great these days. But that all said, um, in California and the West, we're facing drought levels, partly because of nature and partly because of mankind's uh, poorly uh, managed water resources. So much of it is being flushed out to the Delta in Northern California to save a fish that doesn't exist anymore. Um, Mr. Shufflebein, would you talk about um, cattle operations that are downsizing, having to cut down the size of their herd, um, selling off their herds, and what's, what's the longer-term effect to be on rebuilding that herd? What are they going to be looking at in two or three years um, if they're selling the herd early and they don't, they're not able to replace? Talk about that a little bit for me, please. Yeah, and, and as you know, the cattle is a cyclical 
business. And so this goes through ups and downs. And right now we are going through a liquidation phase and it's driven exactly based on the economics that say, I can't afford to raise them. So it weans off some of the cattle. And then as the markets get higher, because there's fewer head involved, the markets respond and get higher. Expansion reoccurs and you go through this expansion reduction cycle every 10 years. And it's almost 10 years on the year that cycle exists. So that's a lot of mayhem in your ability to plan or not take a bath if you're overstocked or maybe you have to pay premiums in order to build your, your herd back up. Is that, is that pretty fair? Yes, sir. And, and again, the other important issue is there's also this big variable called weather that comes into it, right? And weather can disrupt all the plannings in the world. So you can have the best business plan for beef cattle and have a weather function hit you and just destroy that plan entirely. I understood. I mean, I, I feel like uh, whether we can roll with the punches to some level, we, it's rolling with government punches of, you know, taking, take, whether it's taking water like they are in California or taking your vehicles away or trying to try turn them into electric, electric tractors and combines and stuff they're talking about. I mean, I don't know how much more people can put up with, but we also understand there's a concerted effort. You know, I was just looking at a grazing permit. One of the entities just decided like, well, we don't think we can do that grazing permit here in a, in a portion of California because it might be an environmental problem. Yet we burned the forest down, we burned half the landscape down, where grazing would be a very helpful asset towards making things a little more fire safe. Not to mention uh, Forest Service has been busy hiring helicopters with snipers in them to shoot mm. wild cattle down in New Mexico, Mr. Chairman, I think we need to have a hearing about that one day on Forest Service practices instead of fixing the problem of burning down a million acres like happened in my district last year. We're chasing a few cattle down there because an environmental organization is offended they might be getting in the river like, you know, like elk and deer and other stuff do. So the priorities around here are really messed up and our, uh, our, food, uh, our food source is, is in great peril. You know, prices are up. And it's not the grower seeing the high prices. It's somewhere in the middle of all that. And when we're seeing freezer shelves in the store empty, the United States of America, this isn't Russia. Why are we moving towards Russia and what we're doing? It's crazy. And so you guys, you know, God bless you and hang in there because some of us understand the value provided in our communities, even those, I think, part of the effort around here is to have you be pushed out because everybody wants to become a vegan now or something. So we appreciate you and we want you to uh, continue. And, and, and I just appreciate you readdressing food security because it is paramount to the success of the United States of America. Absolutely. We're in a perilous world and we're cutting our own throat with this. So thank you. Hang in there. The gentlewoman from Washington, Ms. Dreyer, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and welcome to our witnesses. Uh, not for the first time on this committee, I want to discuss access to slaughter and processing for small and medium-sized producers, which is a top concern for ranchers in my district. Uh, most small producers in Washington state are served by slaughter and processor services operating under custom exempt licenses granted by the state. Yet Washington has a shortage of inspected processing plants and many producers are not able to pay the costs of those processors or to upgrade their own businesses to meet inspection requirements. 
As a result, many producers that want access to retail markets are currently unable to do so. Uh, to, address, uh, to address the market access issues for local producers in Washington, better access to slaughter and processing would make the biggest difference, in addition to a pipeline of workers in that field. And let's be clear, a concentration of power and ownership for slaughter creates challenges for small farmers who are unable to access these facilities. And we need to have more USDA processing available to producers outside of just the big guys. Um, if we wanna better improve our food supply chains and create local food systems that better serve both producers and consumers, it's essential to increase our processing capacity and access to that. So I wanna ask you, Mr. Stock Mr. Stockton, um, what, what is your experiencing with slaughter and process? processing like um, thank you uh, ma'am <clears throat> i have a i have a number of uh, friends in montana who uh, are doing direct to uh, consumer um, marketing of their cattle but it's uh, it's a very very tough business to get into it uh, it's very hard to uh, you know, develop a client base and get in front of the consumers with your product. That's an expensive way to do so because of the lack of marketing infrastructure at that level. One of, one of the concerns that I have about the movement here to produce more, um, have, have more small packing plants is just exactly that. How how do you get your product in front of the consumer when the meat case that's in uh, Albertsons and Walmart and stuff is already committed to JBS or Tyson or Cargill? I mean, this this is this is part of the dysfunction that we have in the cattle industry. So it, it it's all very nice to say we want to produce more food local. But you can't, those people also can't be competitive because the overall market is not competitive. I mean, you, you need to look at these issues holistically, you know, and, and until you start addressing really the competitiveness of the cattle market, um, these things, these uh, direct-to-consumer things are will be a struggle for people. Uh, God bless them for doing it, and God bless the uh, uh, consumers who uh, buy from them. But it's it's an uphill battle. I'm hearing very similar things from farmers in my district, um, where it even inspected and even looking for places outside of the big supermarkets, you know, to a small neighborhood supermarket or even a farmer's market for online sales, it is very hard to find those consumers and. Um, there's a lot of education that has to happen with what it means to be a small local uh, uh, rancher. Um, so thank you. You know, I just want to close in my remaining time by saying that um, we need, our ranchers need more transparency around what ranchers with other ranchers are being paid. Um, that would help them tremendously and give them uh, a negotiating edge. And small family operated ranches in my district um, need that kind of fairness because the margins are so thin, the distances to travel are so great, and the inputs 
to raise uh, cattle are, are so high. And so uh, setting prices from the top down has led to the farmer's percentage of final project product falling for some time now. And that means producers can't get the income they need for certainty to make ends meet and to have a whole new generation of ranchers. So thank you and I yield back. The gentleman from Illinois, Mr. Davis, is recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, I, I want to say thank you to the witnesses. Uh, very compelling testimony. I appreciate your willingness to be here. Uh, although uh, today's hearing is very compelling, uh, hearing from each of you, but at the same time, this committee has disappointed me in the process because we have yet to talk about meaningful farm bill oversight. Uh, and more importantly, I don't think our discussion today actually gets to the root cause of, of the issues that most Americans are facing. Uh, inflation, it's what's for dinner, would actually be a more appropriate name for this hearing. Uh, after all, the latest CPI report showed the largest 12-month increase in the price of food since 1981. And here's a spoiler. I don't think it's all due to rising beef costs. I'm certain it has a lot more to do with this administration's reckless spending and policies than it does consolidation in the beef industry, as the White House and the chairman so desperately seem to want us to believe. In a good faith effort to make this a more productive hearing, I teamed up with a bipartisan group of colleagues and sent a letter to Chairman Scott requesting an economist or a market analyst familiar with beef pricing dynamics uh, to be able to testify today to give this committee a, a more holistic view of the market situation. Unfortunately, that request uh, was not granted even after one of the majority's witnesses pulled out. I have that letter here with me, Mr. Chair. I'd like to submit it for the record. Without objection. Without objection. Thank you. I, I know that the minority was only offered one witness today and found it necessary to use that opportunity to hear from a more balanced producer panel. Uh, it seemed prudent for a representative from the nation's largest organization of cattle producers to have a seat at the table during discussions of ideas and legislation that could have enormous industry impacts. In a committee that's used to being so bipartisan and solutions-oriented, it's really unfortunate that this bipartisan request couldn't be granted today. Meanwhile, inflation's up 8.5%. We're sitting here pointing fingers, and the Biden administration demands more and more spending. There are so many things we should be addressing in this committee when we talk about the market and consumer prices, like work requirements, supply chain issues, the waste, fraud, and abuse we continue to see in pandemic spending, the refusal to engage in new free and fair trade deals, and refusing to hold China accountable for the trade deals that we already have. So with that, I do have a question. I'll start with you, Mr. Mr. Schiefelbein. Schiefelbein, uh, to any of the producer witnesses, starting with you, what do you think your operations would look like in terms of cash flow and bottom line absent these record levels of inflation? Oh, they would be incredible. So the market prices have gone up. It's just the costs are huge. You know, we look at, we call it the three F's, F's right? It's feed, it's fuel, and it's fertilizer. If you look at those three components, the inflation marks on those three components which drive the engine of our farm, 
are up incredible amounts and it makes, regardless of almost the selling price, an almost impossibility to recover your initial costs. So those inflationary pressures are real, they're huge, and given everything we're talking about today, I couldn't agree more with you that that is fundamentally the most economic impactful thing that's occurring on the farm. Well, I've missed some of my colleagues' questions. I, I wonder if climate change came up, carbon <laughs> issues, or have they? No, they have not. That's a shock because usually that's the that that that's the discussion this committee has has been has, has been discussing at our hearings previously. Instead of inflation, instead of the issues that that you talk about that are impacting your ability to survive as a producer. So I appreciate the opportunity. Any more comments that you might want to make that would? I just want to reiterate, you're right on track, Congressman. Refocus on the issues that are impacting us daily and are huge. I always focus on the big things. My dad always says, successful people get the big things right. But the first thing you have to do is figure out what the big things are and then attack them. So I think you're right on track. So thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I do have a few seconds left. Mr. Young, did you want to address inflationary issues? How would your operations fare? I mean, they're not just from a year ago when I sold my calves to this year. There's only an 18% increase in calf prices that have remained stagnant for years. I mean, this is the first time it went up forever. I mean, as long as I can remember. And Is it covering your other costs related to raising those calves? Well, yeah, and the, the cost to raise those calves has went up exponentially, especially, like you said, the three Fs of farming. They are your biggest expenses. I mean, they, they literally account for... You know, 35 to 40 percent of your overall expense, feed, wow. fuel, and fertilizer. And, you know, right now with the feed markets and everything going astronomically high, $10 corn, you know, to raise a, a buck 45 feeder calf, it doesn't pencil out very well. Well, I, I yield back. I'm out of time. Thank you. Okay. The gentleman from California, Mr. Costa, who is also the chair of the Subcommittee on Livestock and Foreign Agriculture, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, for holding this hearing today. I think the examination of price discrepancies, transparency, and alleged unfair practices in cattle markets is something that uh, clearly uh, is on the minds of many. Um, I appreciate our uh, testimony by the witnesses on this first panel and look forward to the second panel. I uh, think we all agree in, on this committee uh, that food is a national security issue. Um, and uh, uh, I'm one of the, I guess, handful of members of Congress that actually derives my primary income from farming, three generations. Um, and we like to say uh, that uh, uh, farmers uh, and ranchers, uh, dairymen and women and, and, and the cattle producers uh, are price takers, not price makers. Um, I'm wondering, based upon the testimony that you've made here, um, on terms of the factors that we are trying to deal with today, how much um, that uh, goes into account. I mean, there's a lot of factors that have increased prices. And, you know, um, I think the incredible ingenuity of American agriculture has been the fact that change is constant and agriculture understands that and that innovation toward change. I don't farm the way my father farmed. 
and he didn't farm the way my grandfather did. It's a different operation. We had over 20,000 dairies in California uh, 40 years ago. Today we have a little over 1,200 dairies. We were milking less than 200 cows per dairy over 40 years ago. Today the average size is almost 2,000 cows per dairy. Um, that's just one of many examples. Uh, let me get to some of the questions here. Um, Mr. Um, uh, Dabonic, um you indicated that uh, the impacts of uh, the, uh, in, in your testimony, that AMAs are often credited with in incentivizing improved quality. Um, where do you think that really takes place? I know the genetics are much different today than they were in my father's generation. Sir, were you addressing me? Yes. Okay. I didn't catch the name. My apologies. I'm sorry. Yeah. AMAs basically is the, allows the transmission of what consumers want to producers. So it is a, basically a roadmap that says if I want a certain product, let's say non-hormone treated beef, it sends the signal backwards and all of a sudden an AMA is written that says, you know what, I got some of my customers some of my Schieffelbein Farms customers who have cattle that fit that need for those consumers. I am able then to procure those cattle, feed them in such a way with the understanding and uh, realization that I will get paid to do the practices that are necessary to meet those consumer needs. So it's basically that transmission of what is necessary to be done. And then because some of these things are so costly up front, not having an agreement before you put them into production is very detrimental because you're giving away so much cost. Yeah, well, I, I've got family in, in, the, in the cattle business, uh, cow-calf operation, and family in the dairy business, although I'm not directly involved in that anymore. Um, but I thank you, uh, Mr. Schelfenbein, uh, for your, your comments. Mr. Gillies, you talked about the difficulty of putting, um, um, uh, trying to get on the market shelf. Uh, and I think you spoke very well of that difficulty, having had some experience with that. Um, how do you propose or how do you think the proposal to mandate regional cash minimums in cattle transactions would impact the cattle market? Could could you rephrase that? I I, I didn't hear you com, uh, completely, sir. The, the mandate for regional cash minimums that has been discussed in cattle transactions. How do you think that would impact cattle markets? Well, you know that proposal was put forward because of kind of an emergency proposal in order to uh, get better price discovery, more more. Um, confidence in the price that uh, the spot markets were giving to what uh, uh, Mr. Shufflebinder here says is so important, the, uh, the AMAs, uh, the captive supply cattle. Um, well, and price finding is, is all part of the challenge. Excuse me? I says trying to determine the prices uh, in these markets is part of the challenge, right? Right, yeah, the, and the, all the, the confidence, the confidence that you have that it's actually the, the price. Um, the problem with that I, it's, it's my personal thing, the, the, the problem with that pr position, that proposal, is, is that it does not really go to the heart of what's dysfunctional in the cattle market, the lack of competition. 
Um, and until that's being addressed uh, directly, everything else is kind of um, just kicking the can down the road, I'm sorry to say. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. My time's expired. The gentleman from South Dakota, Mr. Johnson, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, for Mr. Schiefelbein, I thought you were right to bring up the Phoenix meeting because uh, it, it, it gave us a sense of what are the consensus items for the marketplace. Uh, I think in your testimony, you alluded to the fact that, you know, sometimes because the cattle industry can't agree, we don't get as much done as we should. And, and there are some consensus items. Uh, the Phoenix meeting had three, uh, three areas of agreement. Uh, number one, the importance of transparency. We've made progress on that with the cattle contract library. Uh, also about adding capacity, the Butcher Block Act has made progress. But then three, critically important oversight, which you mentioned. And I, and I don't know that we've made progress on that front. You mentioned that enforcement is important. Of course, I agree with you. So a little thought exercise for you, sir. Let's say the president calls you, uh, says that you're going to be the next head of Packers and Stockyards. I mean, give us a sense of what is your vision for the agency? How do we do it better? And what is your advice to Congress about what tools we can give you as the head of the agency to do a better job? Yeah, and to me, it's all about enforcement. And and I don't know if the funding's not there. I, I don't know the intricacies, to be quite honest. But to me, the laws are in the books. We just need to make sure enforcement is occurring. And knowledge is also power. If we knew what was occurring and why it occurred, if it occurred, it would be so helpful to my membership, right? They're They're demanding answers. They're saying, our lives are on the line here, okay? Our lives depend on fair and fair markets. How come we can't get answers on what has happened and what has transpired and where we are today? So that's the push I would get is there's a lot of movement towards adding a new agency, a new oversight agency. But the reality is from a government standpoint, why don't you get the one that you got working first? That's my dad's thought process. Fix the tractor that you have before you buy another tractor. Mr. Johnson, yeah. would the gentleman yield? Yes, sir. Um, I think this is a very good question. And with your experience over the years, um, how would you say enforcement has changed one way or the other over the last three decades? You go back to your father and your grandfather. Has it gotten more more enforcement, less enforcement? Have you noticed? And again, I'm, I, I look older than I am, so I'm actually not that big of a span of ages. But the reality, I believe, is that uh, it just seems like the wheels of the Department of Justice have gotten slower and slower and slower. Now, maybe that is just my perspective, but it seems I understand justice takes time, but the progress is so slow that you cannot have a system in place to protect people if the timing on the process can put them out of business. And that, that's what I'm getting at. And uh, reclaiming my time, I think that's exactly right. And for me, you know, we talk about transparency and transparency in the marketplace. I think it would be helpful to have some transparency within the government as well. I think we all understand the rationale of why they don't release a report if they haven't found any wrongdoing. But that silence is not good for the producer. It's not good for the consumer. I would submit it's not good for the packer. Yeah. It makes everybody think something's going on behind the veil. So when we talk about, you mentioned earlier that we haven't heard boo or squat, which is exactly the 
right phrase, sir. Sorry. About the investigations in the wake of the Holcomb fire and COVID. I mean, let's set this information free. It seems to me that that is one key thing we could do to bring a higher level of understanding to what's going on from an enforcement perspective and tell those of us in this room, maybe what we could be helping the DOJ do better with regard to enforcement. I'll give you an opportunity to react. Yeah, and, and again, it's, it goes back to a pretty simple principle you learn raising kids, right? The boogeyman disappears when you turn the light on, right? And there's a boogeyman out there. We don't know if it's real or not real because the light's off. We need the light flipped back on to know whether or not the boogeyman exists. Anything else, Mr. Costa, before I yield back? No, I thank the gentleman for his good questions always. Sounds good. Well, thank you. I think you're exactly right. Let's turn the light on. That's something I think we could find robust bipartisan agreement on. With that, Mr. Chairman, I would yield back. The gentlewoman from Iowa, Ms. Axney, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Scott. Thank you so much for holding this hearing on such an important issue. Um, I'd first like to request unanimous consent to submit to the record a letter and a statement from Bob Noble, president of Iowa Cattlemen's Association. Without objection. Thank you. In the letter, ICA President Noble expresses the need for price discovery and transparency to make sure that we can combat the meatpacking industry consolidation, its captive supply and price manipulation issues. And I appreciate his call to support my bipartisan legislation, the Cattle Price Discovery and Transparency Act, and share his urgency that it's now time for Congress to act on this on behalf of our nation's cattle producers. And after listening to some of the testimony this morning, I'm sure many of my colleagues would agree that something has to be done. Mr. Young, thank you so much for being here. I'm glad to have you here with us today and thanks for sharing your story. And if there are others who are watching this hearing in a similar situation, please know it's okay to ask for help. And you can reach the 24-7 National Suicide Hotline Service at 800-273-TALK. And this summer, you'll be able to reach that by calling 988. And the sad part is I'm sitting here at a hearing for our cattle producers having to put out information like that because it's so rough on our producers in Iowa and other places to get ahead. So here's my first question. I share many of the concerns raised in your testimony. Um, and Mr. Young, can you describe the value that cash trades have in the cattle market? Yes, as a cow calf producer, I mean, our price, you know, we base everything off the Chicago Board of Trade. And that's based off of, not supposed to be the free market, but it's, you know, there's only, like I say, 13% cash cattle on the market that are sold and everything else is set up through AMAs. And those are all private and you don't know what the pricing is. Um, in the cash market, if it was everybody in the beef industry should be able to buy on the cash market and all that information would be out there and you would know exactly what everything is selling for. And there would be more competition between the packers and they wouldn't have nearly as much control. And that's where we know it'll never happen. I mean, I hope and pray it will, but, you know, AMAs are not going to go away and they're going to continue to dominate the marketplace and keep the price of beef to the cow-calf producers suppressed. So is it fair to say then that all producers benefit from a robust cash trade market? That is correct. Thank you. Um, and Mr. Stockton, in your nearly 50 years as a rancher, how has the value of your product changed and what has that led to within your community? 
Um, as I, ma'am, um, as I said in my uh, uh, oral statement, uh, my income per had been halved. The uh, uh, the retail price spread over the life of myself as a rancher has been halved over over that forty seven years period. Um, and my community um, is is devastated. You know, there's less than half as many ranches. I mean, they've taken up the, uh, uh, you know, bought up the, the smaller ranches, consolidated them. Um, one of the most disturbing things that's happening in my community is that the millionaires and billionaires are buying huge ranches just for uh, private hunting reserves. And, and all of us locals are simply locked out of that. Um, and of course, those people have no interest at all in, uh, you know, the health health of our community and the children in school and all of the things that it takes, the businesses that you, you can have a, a thriving group of people uh, working together for a good life. Um, so no... Um, you know, we call it the um, cheap food policy, and the cheap food policy of the United States government has been extraordinarily successful. It's hollowed out uh, rural America, all the way from Grass Range, Montana, to Lumpkin, Georgia, where um, um, I was told not to use this word. I, I'm, I'm sorry, but I can't think of another word. Rural America is one huge slum. And this is a result of the lack of antitrust enforcement and, and the way that we've elected to uh, uh, conduct rural and agricultural policy through, through the farm bills. Thank you. And if we do nothing, what do you think the future looks like? If we don't act on this in Congress now, what do you think the future looks like? I think... The food security of your children and your grandchildren is in jeopardy. That's right. When when you have, you know, it's it's we're talking about the uh, uh, the beef cartel at this hearing, but this isn't the only um, cartels or source of uh, of uh, monopolization. It cuts across all of agriculture, but it cuts across a lot of the other. In, uh, most important industries of uh, the United States. And until we start trying to deal with that and do something, um, we're, we're simply vulnerable to every um, vagaries of the weather, which is, I shouldn't call it vagaries because it's getting very um, pronounced, and um, things that are happening in other countries that which we have no control. For instance, this this invasion of uh, U- the Ukraine by by Russia. I mean, th- that affects us. I, uh, to use a, a phrase, America first here. When when are we going to look after the interests of the people of the United States and and their security and their needs? The general lady's time has expired. And now the gentleman from Mississippi, Mr. Kelly, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, witnesses, for being here. Uh, 
Mr. Schaffelbein, uh, your testimony expresses clear opposition to the Cattle Price Discovery and Transparency Act, and you've answered a little bit why that is. Uh, if you would like to expand on that and further, what alternatives can we as Congress do that, uh, that remedy this situation or aid cattle producers in the marketplace? Yeah, to me, it's all about empowering producers. Let producers come up with the solutions and let them innovate, as the chairman suggested, in terms of making the next best things. And to me, the best government is a government that stays out of the way when it comes to marketing and lets the good of the people come up with the great ideas and move an industry in the direction it needs to go. And that's what we've done over the last 20 years. If you look at the mandate that's putting that they're trying to push, they're basically trying to cram our industry back into the bottle, the way it was 20 years ago, 15 years ago. That's not healthy for an industry. Change is a part of the industry. And especially if you look at the impact it's had on meeting consumer preferences, nothing could be more advantageous for the industry to listen to your consumer. And I just, some data, just according to most USDA ag census, we've lost over 32% of my home state's cow-calf producers over a 25-year time period from 22,097 to 14,000 in 2017. That number today is probably really much worse. This controls, uh, it concerns me greatly. Also, the timing of a negotiated cash market to the point that there may not be a cash market one day. Are there any solutions or do you have any ideas on that? And it's going to take innovation. I think if I were to put on my crystal, look into my crystal ball, I would say there'll be a time when the AMAs probably include a component of box beef price so that it allows you to share in the good and share in the bad with uh, the person downstream so that if it's, if it's beneficial, everybody benefits, and if it's bad, everybody suffers. And to me, it's those innovations we want to make sure continue to flow that allow the marketplace to figure out this awkward time and how do we distribute this money equitably. You know, and I'm just, uh, I, I'm kind of old school. I mean, I grew up, my granddaddy ran about 20, 25 head of cows uh, in a cow-calf production. And so I grew up in that environment. Uh, there's not a lot of those guys left, just like there's not small dairies. There's not a lot of other small things. And so, but we need to get back to, that's great. But at some point, there's no redundancy in that. And we don't want this nation to be relying on two, three producers that can be taken out. And then we have no producers. We lose the ability. So what do we we do to get more small cow-calf producers engaged in the process? Is there anything we at Congress can do to help do that so that we have some redundancy and, 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 and backup? And, and I think some of the things you're doing is valuable in terms of allowing local processings to occur, I think is an absolute windfall for small producers. I, I was in Kentucky just a week ago and talked to two different guys who are now using the energy of being able to market their own product successfully to a consumer within 50 miles around them, right? And that invigorates them, that excites them. And I think we're doing some things along those ways. So to me, it's providing tools that allow them to be the best at what they do, not confining them or taking away tools that allow them to do the best possible. 
I want to thank you guys, every one of y'all again, for what you do for America. I, I truly am one of those guys. I'm on the Armed Services Committee and the Intel Committee, and I'm on the Ag Committee because I think all those things are national security because I truly believe that food security and the ability to produce in all conditions is national security. And I don't think there's anything greater. So to our 1% who farm in America, of which you are, I just want to thank you. And with that, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Well stated. Thank you. The gentleman from Arizona, Mr. O'Halloran, is recognized for five minutes. I want to thank the chairman and ranking member for this uh, uh, hearing today and also for the those that are participating as witnesses. Uh, cattle ranching is an important part of Arizona's economy. Earlier this month, <clears throat> I hosted a processing roundtable with these producers from my district. I heard from a range of stakeholders, including rural producers, tribal producers, and economic development specialists. The recent disruptions in cattle markets have disproportionately harmed small and rural producers who were already at a disadvantage in competing in a highly consolidated marketplace. Because of an increase in the food cost of fuel, feed, maintenance, land, and water, Producers are dealing with a 75 to 80 percent increase in operating cost, uh, making it nearly impossible for small family-run farms to compete. Uh, and this hearing today hasn't uh, brought out anything to make my optimism grow. Uh, I, I think that the uh, other concerns that we heard from uh, are uh, where are our young producers coming from? What about the families uh, that uh, have historically been there? Uh, the beef packing capacity, uh, and I'll talk about co-ops in a little bit. Uh, the real problem, I come from both a, a family uh, in, in, in our family's history of, uh, of um, dairy farming, and uh, also uh, have spent time, I uh, heard of the Board of Trade mentioned a little while ago, and I was a trader on the Board of Trade and came up with those uh, and worked in that environment where uh, we knew what transparency was about. Uh, and I'm sorry to see that uh, it's gone down this road. It's impossible to be able to meet the challenges without transparency in the process. Uh, it came to my mind in the course of this that uh, the word monopoly came to my mind, the word cartel came to my mind. And when I looked up the definition, it's the uh, excessive uh, possession or control of supply of a trade. Excuse me for one moment, um, Mr. Alleman. There may be someone uh, that's not muted. We're having difficulty hearing the congressman. Everyone except uh, the congressman. Let's get muted. You may continue, Mr. Alleman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I'll just continue on with the definition uh, of a trade or a commodity uh, or service. Uh, what we didn't talk about is the power, other powers, the economic powers, not only the devastating economic powers to, to the uh, uh, producers, the, the smaller producers, uh, but those powers that they are, are allowed to have economically to be able to overcome uh, the type of costs that we've seen on the sm smaller market producers, and that's feed, fuel, 
and uh, uh, fertilizer, uh, also market control, and many other aspects. And I do hope that the Attorney General's office will go down a path of, of fairly identifying and, and working on these issues. Uh, I would uh, like to ask a question of Mr. Young. Uh, have you uh, considered this uh, in the past, the, uh, the process of uh, the idea of establishing co-op processing facilities to increase processing capacity, uh, which in, is scarce in rural areas, uh, especially my area also? Uh, and, and, and if so, what were the hurdles you faced uh, and can the USDA be helpful in this process? I didn't quite hear what you said. I, I can barely hear you. You're I'm sorry about that. Uh, I'll try this again. Several Arizona producers brought up the idea of establishing a co-op processing facility to increase processing capacity, which is, is scarce in rural areas. Have you considered this in the past? And if so, uh, what were the hurdles you faced? And can the USDA be helpful in this process? I mean, yeah, that, that idea has been out there for a long time. I've actually been talking about it recently. You know, there was a, a lot of small processors that popped up during the pandemic. You know, they saw the store shelves were empty, so they took the opportunity to open their own small locker. The only problem they're having is getting USDA approval so they can sell their beef, you know, as a farmer directly to the consumer at a farmer's market, set up an online marketing system directly from their farm to the table, and that's the only hurdle they've, that they've faced now is, you know, all the red tape associated with getting USDA approval for their small locker operations. And they're so, you know, overregulated. And, I mean, there's a lot of red tape to get through to get that USDA stamp of approval, which I understand, you know, the sanitation standards, you know, of this world in which we live now are so high that, you know, some of the regulations in the approval of USDA facilities, you know, may not be, you know, negligent or required. Um, but yeah, the, the smaller producers, you know, that's more power to them. That'd be great if they could get 10, 15, 20, 30 guys to invest in a co-op locally owned processing facility. That empowers them as producers. Thank you, and, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Young. And I yield. The gentleman from Kansas, Mr. Mann, is now recognized for five minutes. Right, th thank you, Mr. Chairman. And on behalf of the farmers, ranchers, and agricultural producers in the First District of Kansas, thank you all for participating in today's full committee hearing regarding beef markets. This issue is especially near and dear to me since both sides of my family have farmed and fed cattle in western Kansas for the last 120 years. I grew up on a preconditioning feed yard, spent thousands of hours doctoring sick cattle, um, kind of the best of times and worst of times all wrapped into one, but um, good family time. Uh, the big first, my district ranks number one in the country for the value of sales of cattle and calves at more than $9 billion annually. There are more than 4.4 million cattle and calves raised in my district and significant packing capacity with more than 20% of the nation's beef slaughter capacity. We see the entire beef supply chain in the big first, from cow-calf producers to cattle feeders to packers. 
More broadly, the beef sector supports grain producers, manufacturers, veterinarians, and many other businesses that populate rural towns across Kansas and across the country. In a competitive cattle market, it is vital for producers to be able to differentiate their product to eventually suit the taste of the consumer. As seen by the growing demand for beef here in the U.S. and and internationally, selective breeding and nutrition that have increased quality bring opportunities for producers to negotiate a premium for price for their cattle. These contracts allow feeders to benefit from making a value-added investment and provide some certainty in the volatile market. Across the country, cattle producers continue to face challenging market dynamics, including historically wide gaps between wholesale beef prices and fed cattle prices, packing capacity regulation, and more. I've talked to hundreds of cattle producers in Kansas, ranging from small cow-calf operations to some of the country's largest feed yards. Overwhelmingly, I've heard that we need to increase price discovery in the cash market, make sure that producers benefit when they provide a superior product, refuse to let the government interfere in the free market, and acknowledge regional differences. There's currently discussion, you know, here in Washington around the federal government mandating a certain percentage of cash or spot transactions between the feeder and the packer, limiting the number of allowable alternative market agreements. Limiting the number of allowable alternative market agreements, AMAs, are popular across the big first and used by many because they cut cost, increase efficiencies, and reward producers for a higher quality product. Um, so uh, a few questions. Uh, first question um, for you, Mr. Um, Schiffelbein, and thank you for being here. Do you feel that the legislation proposed to limit the use of AMAs would negatively infect the beef market? And how do you think it'll impact beef quality? As, as I've mentioned before, that AMAs and that transparency is is basically the signals from the consumer to producers and what to do. So from that standpoint, I know with certainty it's going to have an important negative impact, okay? Because we need those signals strong and transparent and flowing freely from consumer to producer. The the whole idea of mandating the packers to me is a misnomer because when you mandate one half of a deal maker, you're also mandating producers. And that's where we get the rub. When you're mandating producers on how they ought to manage their cattle and market their cattle, I think bad things will occur. And actually to the detriment of the people promoting it, I think the largest concern occurs into small and mid-sized producers like myself. Because when you're limited to a certain number, all of a sudden now you have a packer picking winners and losers. And it doesn't allow me to exert my thing that says, because I have a superior product, choose me, choose me. Instead, you're deferring to a packer. So I think it goes down a very dangerous road, especially for mid and small, small uh, sized uh, feeders. Okay. Thank you. Uh, another question for, for you, sir. Do you believe that the establishment of the cattle contract library, you know, that was done by this Congress earlier this year, similar to what is existing in the swine contract library. Do you think that's going to provide more transparency to the, the, the market? And how do you think it's going to produce impact producers in, in Kansas and around the country? Well, the intent certainly is there. And again, I mentioned before, and I testified previously, the devil's in the details. And, and that's what raises some concern for our producers is the way it's put together made actually tell you whether it's favorable or it actually could be neutral to unfavorable depending on if the packers have more utility with the contract than the producers. So to me, I really like the approach of the pilot project, but I think 
constructing it in a manner that is a, a benefit to producers is of utmost importance. Okay, great. I see my time is expiring. Uh, th- thank you for being here. And with that, I yield back. Thank you. The gentleman from Georgia, Congressman Austin Scott, is now recognized for five minutes. Th- thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I want to uh, apologize to the the panel for being late. I was in the Armed Services Committee with the uh, Secretary of the Air Force and a couple of generals going over over their budgets. Um, Mr. Stockton, I believe it was you that brought up the antitrust and the Federal Trade Commission. Is that correct? And in the monopolization, if you will, of what is happening in processing. Um, could, could you restate that for me, please? I, I have I, a little. I, I think I heard a statement from you that I very much agree with. The Federal Trade Commission has not been active enough in this, and it's led to a significant amount of monopolization in, in the processing. Um, yes, uh, federal, but, but also particularly uh, lack of enforcement of the Packers and Stockyards Act. Um, you know, when the Packers and Stockyards Act was first uh, initiated in 1921 and there was a consent decree that required that the Packers, uh, the cartel of that time, had to purchase all of their cattle in a marketplace that they did not own or control. Um, it was a, a free enterprise approach to solving that problem that w- worked beautifully. Because by the time I started ranching in 1975, the Packer concentration was down to about 25% of four largest firms. Mr. Stockton, can I ask you something on another law at the time? If I'm not mistaken, and this is going back many years, my my grandfather and I ran a few hundred head in Georgia. And and back at that stage in the, uh, it would have been in the early 90s, uh, there were were several stockyards in the area. There were multiple places where you could take a, a calf to get it processed. Uh, m- most of those don't exist anymore. Which, which exactly, brought yes. up is, is one of the problems. So there's not a whole lot of options for the farmers to sell to sell their product. Um, but there was a time when the packers were not allowed to actually own the animal up to and until uh, maybe two or three days before the animal was processed, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Am I correct mm-hmm. in that? And and those laws have all gone away. Most of them were at the state level, if I'm not mistaken, not, not necessarily a federal law. But do, do you think that, um, that that is an issue that if it were revisited? Well, uh, yes. The, the Packers and Stockyards Act is very clear that there – uh, a packer should um, not give an advantage or a disadvantage to any buyer or seller. Um, and if they're owning cattle, well, they're obviously giving an advantage to themselves. Mm. Um, and um, <clears throat> yes, you 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 need to revisit the the consent decree that they had in 1921. If, if the packers were purchasing all of their cattle through some form of uh, competitive market, uh, we, we wouldn't have any reason to be sitting here today. This all problem would be solved. I, I do know that um, the Georgia cattlemen, and I'm not saying all of them are in favor of this, but I do know there has been discussion with the Georgia cattlemen about them putting together some type of a co-op and the ability to... Uh, Slaughter and process, and slaughter's a word nobody likes to 
likes to use, right? But the bottom line is, you know, our hamburgers come from an animal that's been slaughtered and, pro- and processed. Yeah. Uh, but but most of the places that, as a kid, if you could go to and have something um, slaughtered, I mean, today, if they're, if they're still in business, they're cutting box beef. Very few of them actually uh, have the, the license to... Um, to actually kill the animal, and it, it's, it's hogs as well as as cows, and and so I've got hog farmers that have to ship their their hogs from South Georgia all the way to Tar Heel, North Carolina. Well, that's a lot of transportation costs when diesel's five dollars a gallon. Yeah. Uh, so I appreciate you all be you all being here. I will tell you, I'm very concerned about some of the conduct I'm seeing from some of the people that are about to testify and the differentials and and what they're paying people um, based on race. And I'm yeah. going to ask that question as we go go forward with the next panel. But uh, yeah. thank you for your time and your testimony. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for your question, Mr. Scott, because I agree with you completely. What we need is a multiplicity of market channels. And now that we've concentrated it through this one funnel, um, until, until we solve that problem. Uh, the retailers are not innocent in this. And the retailers are not innocent in this. I yield. The gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Allen, is recognized for five minutes. Uh, th- thank you, Mr. Chairman. And, uh, of, of course, uh, I presume the purpose of this uh, hearing today is to deal with the cost of what we're paying for meat and how, uh, who's responsible. Uh, obviously, uh, we are faced, I think it was record, 8.5% inflation uh, and, uh, in this last year, uh, you know, obviously, uh, one of the drivers of inflation is not only what the feds are pumping into the economy to cover government spending, but it's government spending. It is policy and, and it's energy policy. It's, and it's driving the cost of everything, uh, beyond anything we've, we've seen. Uh, probably in our lifetime, maybe even since the Carter presidency. So, uh, you know, that's the issue. That's why we're here. And, of course, what we've got is apparently some uh, allegations that, you know, we need to get to the bottom of as far as our industry is concerned. Mr. Chairman, you mentioned in your opening statement that due to intimidation or threats to a person's livelihood, one of our witnesses chose not to participate today. You also mentioned that you will be following up on the situation, and I, and I hope you will. You know, these are very similar, uh, serious criminal allegations. I know many of our members are curious to know additional details of this situation, if, if true. Uh, you know, it's deeply concerning. Uh, are there additional details you can provide our members so we can address it? And I understand if there is a desire to protect this individual, uh, but you choose to raise the matter. That, but why do you choose to raise the matter in a public setting? And with that, Mr. Chairman, I yield back to you. We're looking into it. It's a very serious situation. And uh, the right thing for us to do is to address it so that it will not happen ever again. Then, uh, so you're not prepared here to uh, to disclose any not details. until we get all the facts. It would be um, improper for me to discuss any details on it when I don't have the full facts. Okay. All right. 
Uh, well, with that, I'll yield back. Thank you. And now the general lady from Minnesota, Ms. Fishback, is recognized for five minutes. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chair, and thank you all for being here today. Um, uh, Mr. Scheffelbein, I uh, just wanted to ask you, you know, the, the issues of price discovery, concentration, and market manipulation are serious issues, but I firmly believe that government mandates or strong-arming the private sector when, when politically expedient is the wrong approach. Um, the best solution in my mind is more transparency and more competition, and you mentioned some of that earlier in some other answers. Um, discussing these issues with you earlier, you clearly feel the same way. Uh, but we also discussed the grassroots effort that your organization took to get to this point. And I was wondering if maybe you could describe the voluntary 75% plan and the process that your organization uses to get to your policy positions. Yes, I I'd be glad to. And, and basically, we know negotiated trade is important. We know it's important. We know it's important to our members. So the question then became within our membership is, we have the control because a buyer and a seller must agree on a way to sell an animal for it to go forward. So how do we push more negotiated trade into the system? So what we did is we put together a voluntary approach that said, producers, we know negotiated trade is important. How can we elevate this, and especially in key regions? And we set targets. So we put robust marketing targets at each region to say, if we meet this goal, the likelihood of successful price discovery is high. And we implemented that and, and the remarkable results were we doubled in the state of Texas the percent of negotiated trade and met that threshold 75% of the more of the time all the way through. So it was, it was an incredibly good experience. Thank you. And, and just, you know, as I mentioned earlier, your constituent of mine, I've been out to the farm. I, um, but I did want you to and visit with your family. Um, but just wanted you to, um, you know, maybe take a moment to briefly talk about the family and the farm and, um, so that we understand a little bit better about the, about your organization, the company. Yeah, and one thing maybe that this group could take to heart is we're a family affair, a large family affair. Just like this body, we have differing opinions. And when you have differing opinions, respect each other, but you have to go forward with something. And what we found out is when a body disagrees on an item, we don't keep pushing that item and pushing that item and pushing that item. And I think that plays well into the mandate question. You know, we have lots of potential solutions for our industry to go forward, yet we continue to come back and say, how do we get government involved in marketing through mandates when clearly that's a divisive wedge issue. Why can't we move on to some outcomes that are positive, just like in the family that say, let's do this item that makes sense that we all can agree on. And I would share that's probably the most fundamentally thing similar to our farm that would uh, show value in the Congress. Thank you very much. And I appreciate that. And I yield back, Mr. Chair. Thank you very much. And now the gentleman from Nebraska, Mr. Bacon, you're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, hopefully you don't mind uh, a guy named by Bacon asking some good beef questions to you. <laughs> so uh, you know, in our district, we have a lot of uh, feeder, feeder lots. We also have a lot of meat processing plants. So I think it's really important 
uh, that we get this right uh, for all involved and, I, and, I, and so with a balanced policy. So our first question is to Mr. Schiefelbein, or Schiefelbein, excuse me. Can you briefly talk us through the recent Fed cattle and beef price trends? And in your opinion, are those reflective of market supply and demand? And how do these, how do these prices compare to pre-pandemic? So, yeah. And, and that's the perspective. That's a fantastic, fantastic question. From a perspective standpoint, everybody has to understand it's so hard to realize what you just lived through. But if you look at what occurred with a pandemic to the beef industry, there has never been anything like it before. You know, when you talk about 40% of your market share disappearing overnight, I mean, the, the effect to the economy, to the beef industry is huge. And then you have to study on why it occurred the way it did. And that's where I think the question is really good. From a simplicity standpoint, when you have cattle numbers like this, and you have to push them through a processing pipeline this size, somebody has to decide which of these cattle make it through the pipeline. Mm -hmm. In America, capitalism does that through de describing prices. And so you're basically forced to say through pricing, how do we eliminate this many cattle to this many cattle? And that's the huge price fall that occurred in the fed cattle market, art market. Then, then I just want to say, on the flip side, people wonder why the beef price went so high. The beef price, on the other hand, went from that small funnel to all these producers who want good American beef, right? So that's why the discrepancy occurred. There was a funnel in the middle that had to ration mm -hmm. on the left side, and they had to ration on the right side, and that's where the price discrepancy came. Sounds like the answer is more capacity. And what can we? Be, and it takes a lot of capital investment to do that. Is there, what's the role from Congress in trying to facilitate more capacity? And it's going to go contrary to a lot of what Congress likes to do. And that is, as you put on more regulations, red tape, and oversight, okay, as you put on all three of those, it actually hinders the ability of mid to small packers to compete with large packers who can put an enormous amount of their top line, if you will, into that. So you have to be able to, how do we streamline getting these into process with the least amount of red tape and allow them to function efficiently? A follow-up question with you there, sir. Uh, you mentioned the importance of knowing the results of the DOJ investigation before we go forward and attempting to fix some of these alleged problems. Do, do you worry that Congress or the administration are rushing ahead to attempt to fix problems that don't exist or that we simply don't know enough about it at this point? What, what's your thoughts? I don't know. I, I wished I knew. And that's where, again, that shining the light on would be better. I, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm an optimistic person at heart. So I'm hopeful that uh, mm. the answer is they just haven't come around to it yet. And they're not trying to withhold information from us. So that's my optimistic nature. It's always better to re ready, aim, fire versus fire, ready, aim. So it's yes, better sir. to have the fa that facts yes, first. To all the panelists, I'm curious, are any of you or your businesses directly involved in the trade of fed cattle with at least one meat packer? So how often, and can you describe, or how often, and can you describe what your typical interactions might be with that packer? Just, what, do you have, what, do you deal, deal with one or more packers, or what's, what's been your relationship? No, I said earlier, I don't deal directly with the Packers. I'm a cow-calf guy. I, mm -hmm. I breed them, raise them, then sell them off the cow at seven to ten months of age to either a feeder or whomever purchases them, and they feed them out and have to you know, sell their cattle through a Packer you know, so the consumer can purchase their product. But I don't deal with them at all. Thank you. 
Yeah, and I have probably sold calves to Mr. Sheffelbein. Okay, well, I appreciate, I appreciate your uh, testimony today, and, and we're learning from you, and so I'm grateful for your time. Thank you. Mr. Chair, I yield. The gentlelady from Florida, Ms. Kamag, is recognized for five minutes. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Thompson. You know, I, uh, I'm very excited about this particular hearing as I come from a small cow-calf operation myself. I grew up on uh, a small ranch in Colorado, so I, uh, I appreciate and sympathize with a lot of our, our witnesses here today. You know, livestock is one of the most important agricultural commodities uh, in my district and certainly in our state. And what I hear on the ground from our producers in Florida is a far more nuanced and complex picture of the current challenges facing the livestock industry than this administration and the majority are willing to admit. You know, the Florida cattlemen are ardently opposed to a cattle market mandate. And when I hear from folks back home, they typically express their concerns about government intervention and overreach that jeopardizes their own futures. Many of the mandates that have been proposed, the attacks on packers of all sizes, and an all-out war on the livestock industry, our producers from this administration that has chosen to wage war in the name of unfounded, unproven allegations will ultimately do more harm than good to the folks that I know back home, but of course elsewhere. Honestly, this seems like an oversimplification of a very complex issue is going to do more harm than good. Uh, now to that end, uh, Mr. Schiefelbein, uh, and I'm so sorry, I'm, I'm probably butchering that. I'd like to pick your brain about what I perceive to be a very real threat to the industry. Cattle producers are the first line of defense in protecting the land, the environment, and our natural resources. Sadly, or unsurprisingly, this administration has ignored this fact and instead marshaled its regulatory agencies to stage an all-out assault on our livestock producers with a slew of burdensome regulations that lack both science and logic. For example, the April 11th SEC uh, published rule talking about greenhouse gases emissions uh, and the disclosures for publicly traded companies. Now, our producers may not immediately be impacted, but this may require these companies to disclose emission dates from their supply chain, which could include our cattle producers. So how does regulatory uh, dysfunction at the federal level, as I just mentioned, impact our U.S. cattle producers? And are you concerned that this administration may be pushing an agenda that is based far beyond real, credible scientific evidence? Yeah, to answer the question, yes, absolutely. There, there are times when facts don't matter, and facts should drive everything. If you look at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, how we differ from many other organizations is we are fact-based. So what the truth is is what the truth is, and when they start to hurdle around emissions that are way beyond the reality of what's occurring out there, boy, you start to diminish the case and diminish the reality of what we're dealing with. So to me, it's all about getting the right information and the right people and promoting it correctly. If you look at the environmental grab on like waters of the United States, to me, that is an all out grab to take away stewards of the environment and put the government in charge. And, you know, just from my perspective, I would encourage anybody who believes the government should have more say in managing resources to come out by me and look at the land that the government owns and manages, 
contrast it with the land that our private citizens own, and I think there would be not a soul in here who wouldn't say the movement towards more government control and reach over environmental controls is not healthy for the industry. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Sheeplebein. Um, and I might just call you Don uh, so that I don't continue to butcher your name. But um, I, I do appreciate that answer. And I do appreciate the fact that you've got your hat sitting properly on the table. That's how I know that you're you're a, a true uh, country boy. Now, you just further proved my point that the regulatory environment has helped kill our small and mid-sized processors and packers. And I know it's not just from your testimony today, but I can name about a half a dozen of these operations that have dissolved and are up for sale. And, you know, it's just because simply the margins aren't there. We know that the margins aren't there. And I can tell you from experience that we don't always know what our inputs are. And I would challenge our producers to, to, to check on what our inputs are. Now, this is an ever evolving situation and we know that. And in large part, because of the government overreach that we're experiencing. You know, when you've got uh, operations that are processing up to 2,500 cattle a week and they still can't make the numbers work and you would need at least 2,500 a week to make a regional dent in the in the marketplace. This isn't this isn't a mismanagement issue. This is this is a fact that this government and this administration are doing more to harm our producers and by extension, the industry and the very vertical vertically integrated system that we have and we cannot sustain the regulatory environment to make these operations work. So it's just not tenable. And I, I thank you all for being here today. Uh, I, I know that this is something that is a very complex and nuanced yes. issue, but to our witnesses for, for appearing thank before you. the committee, thank you for your testimony. And uh, thank you to uh, the chairman and the ranking member for hosting this very, very important topic. And with that, I yield back. The gentleman from Iowa, Mr. Fenstra, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Thompson. I thank you for the witnesses concerning this uh, this uh, very tough topic. Uh, during my time today, I'd like to ensure that Iowa producers have a seat at the table by discussing Iowa issues concerning market reform. I have three out of four packers in my district. I've traveled all 39 counties in my district at least twice a year, and I hear the critical concerns of my producers about the industry. My district ranks number one in pork, number three in poultry, number six in cattle and calves, and out of 431 congressional districts that sell agricultural products, my district ranks second. With all this information, one can conclude that agriculture is truly the economic engine in my district. According to the report from the University of Nebraska, the USDA cattle region with the highest cattle gra grading is the Iowa-Minnesota region. In fact, over 94% of the cattle in my region grade over 80% choice. This compares to less than 13% from Texas, Oklahoma, and the New Mexico region. Midwest cattle producers are hurting. They, are see, they see everyone in the supply chain making large profits while they're losing from anywhere from $100 to $150 a head. Fairness and transparency create sustainable agriculture supply chain, which is critical to our producers. The processing of cattle is mostly operated by four packers that control nearly 85% of the market. This market share lets them control the price through contracts, manage the amount of, of uh, animals being slaughtered through line speeds, and the control of supply livestock to their satisf satisfaction. 
The system is set up where the Packers will never see a loss, creating massive guaranteed profits while rural farmers lose their livelihoods. We noted this earlier uh, with one of the witnesses, Don uh, Scheffelbein, saying that in, uh, several months ago in Arizona, four of the large meat packers agreed to provide information to a cattleman's organization for a producer-led initiative to achieve 75% of the negotiated trade needed for robust tri- price discovery in each reporting region. Feeders made an effort to meet this voluntary threshold, but the initiative failed due to the lack of packer participation. Packers can manipulate the regional supply of cattle by simply shifting their captive supply from one region to the next. Without more transparency in the market, we will continue to see these these downfalls. Senator Grassley said it best yesterday in their hearing in in the U.S. Senate. In order to have a sustainable supply of meat, We need transparency in the marketplace and to protect the market from collapsing where there is a supply chain, when there are supply chain disruptions. My producers in Iowa constantly tell me that there's a lack of competition, an argument I often hear about the alternative market agreements increase efficiency. But the packers and the corporate feed yards that they have relationships with only one and that that benefits them. The small producers don't and certainly the consumers don't either. I want, every, I want to be very clear. Efficiency is not an excuse for exploitation. And what's happening right now is the exploitation of smaller independent producers for the benefit of the big four. I taught economics at Dort University. I'm a strong champion of fierce, mar- of fierce competitive free market. However, open markets need free entry. It's clear that the cattle market is insufficient because there is no one that has access to the same information. It's because of this that I am a supporter of my Senate colleagues, Senator Grassley and Senator Fisher's Cattle Price Discovery and Transparency Act. And I intend to lead this bill in, in, with Congresswoman Axney to get it to the House floor. The legislation has 19 bipartisan co-sponsors in the Senate, and I am hopeful that we will receive the same support in the House. We all agree that cattle production is one of the most important agricultural industries in the United States, consisting of over 700,000 farms, with more than 90% being family-owned or operated. Any manipulation of the markets that would threaten this must come to light. As the voice of our country's producers, it is our job and our responsibility and our duty to expose any inequity. Iowa's small independent producers deserve a level playing field, and it's time for the big packers to play by the rules that were set long ago. With that, I yield back. Thank you very much, Mr. Frenchra. And let me just say, we come to the end of our first panel, and I just want to thank you, each of you, Mr. Young, Mr. Stockton, Mr. Sheffield Bain. I hope I got that right. This has been just so revealing. It's been helpful to open our minds and our eyes to much of what we've been only dimly aware. And that's why I wanted to have the ranchers here, and you spoke for them. And uh, this helps us tremendously. And now, what I want to do, Mr. Young, Mr. Stockton, and Mr. Schaeferbein, is just to let you know that we are determined to bring some corrections 
so we can make sure that we don't have our cattle farmers not being able to make a profit in four years. We want to reverse the term of them selling their farms, of their next generation, their children, not being able to even go into the business. The meat packers and the farmers, the beginning of our beef supply line, and here at the end, and then our consumers. These are the main features that this committee is vitally concerned about. But at the heart of it are you all who produce the cattle, put the time and the years in, and we have listened carefully and we understand what we need to do, and you all have been very helpful. God bless you, and you have inspired this committee to respond and join with our next panel because we can't come to this solution without the meat packers. We're all partners in this. We are the greatest agriculture system in the world, and you all have given us the information to correct this imbalance. So I thank you. And right now, we're going to take a five-minute break, get our other panel in of our CEOs, and while you all remove yourselves, and we will readjourn in five minutes. Thank you once again. Our meeting will now come to order. Thank you all. We now are going to start our second panel with the uh, chief executive officers of the Ford Meatpacking Companies. And uh, I certainly want to, I see my good friend, Senator Chuck Grassley has joined us in the back. Welcome, my friend. Uh, as I mentioned a little earlier ago, a senator called me a while back, came over and met with me in my office, shared the bill. So I think it's very important because we're moving both in the Senate and in the House to try to make sure that we bring together an effective piece of legislation to address this issue, to make sure that our ranchers are getting equity, to make sure that the next generation of um, farmers who are family members remain in the business. So we're going to address that. Right now, thank you. Nice having you, uh, Senator Grassley. Um, and right now, we're going to introduce our uh, panelists. And our first witness for our second panel today is Mr. David McClendon, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Cargill Incorporated. Our second witness 
is Mr. Tim Shellpepper, the Chief Executive Officer of JBS USA Holding Incorporated. Our third witness is Mr. Tim Klein, the Chief Executive Officer of National Beef Packing Company, LLC. And our fourth and final witness today is Mr. Donnie King, the Chief Executive Officer of Tyson Foods. And first, what I want to do is to ask our witnesses to please raise your right hand and please jointly state your name for the record. David McLennan. Our third, is he on? Oh, you may need to unmute. I am unmuted. All right. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. And you are? I'm David McLennan. Okay, thank you. From Cargill. All right, thank you. Mr. Shellpepper? Mr. Shellpepper? Uh, you might want to unmute. Please state your name. Uh, Tim Shelton. Thank you. Um, this was very important, this hearing. Um, our, our final witness is Mr. Donna King. Please state your name, the Chief Executive Officer of Tyson's. Donnie King. Correct. It's important to have your name stated because we will now swear you in. Uh, again, will all witnesses please raise your right hand? Do you solemnly swear that the testimony you are about to give today before the committee and matters under consideration is the truth? the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I do. I do. I do. Thank you very much. I want to, first of all, express my deep appreciation for the CEOs to join us today because we cannot come together with solutions to deal with this important issue without the input and the discussion with the chief executive officers. And so I want to thank you for taking the time to come and help us solve the issues that will be presented here today. And so with that, let's get right to it. Mr. McClendon, we'll start with you. Please begin when you are ready. Thank you, Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Thompson, and members of the committee. And thank you all for inviting me here today to discuss the food system, the shared challenges we face to ensure that food is produced and delivered safely, responsibly, and reliably in the United States as well as around the world. The food system has been remarkably resilient through the challenges of the last two years. We face an ongoing pandemic 
extreme weather conditions and global disruptions. Still, food shortages have been rare and we've maintained good supplies due to the essential work of those in the sector. My name is Dave McLennan and I am the CEO of Cargill. Cargill is 155,000 people working across the globe to nourish the world in a safe, responsible and sustainable way. Our operations are broad. We bring together people, ideas and resources to deliver products, technology, and ways of operating that build successful businesses and communities. We produce a range of edible oils used in restaurants and home cooking, as well as ingredients for food and beverage companies. We provide bio-based solutions across industries, including construction materials, paints, and beauty products. We support better animal health and nutrition with feed and premix options, we help farmers finance their operations, manage risk, and improve their soil. And we process beef, turkey, value-added meats, and egg products for retail, food service, and processing customers. We also innovate by producing alternative proteins, including plant-based proteins. Today, I am here to talk about North American Protein, one of Cargill's many businesses. It is headquartered in Wichita, Kansas, and it employs more than 28,000 people in 19 states. We operate facilities, distribution centers, feed mills, and hatcheries in rural communities across the US. The jobs that Cargill employees do every day in these facilities put protein on the family table for millions of Americans. We recognize their contributions with competitive compensation, and benefits like on-site medical care, nearby wellness clinics, and housing support. We increased base pay significantly over the past two years to recognize the critical role that they play during COVID and as frontline workers. We acknowledge that the rising price of many goods, including food, poses significant challenges for consumers worldwide. The price for meat is not immune to the global factors that are causing inflation, supply and demand, labor constraints, transportation challenges, and rising feed costs add even greater pressure, and it all leads to increased prices at retail. Meatpacking is a complex and cyclical business. The size and scale of our operations provides the agility to help mitigate volatility and ensure that food is efficiently brought from farm to table. We are providing a consistent food supply and strengthening the resilience of the food system to mitigate disruptions. We are actively hiring to reduce labor shortages, increasing wages and benefits for employees and investing in our plants so that they are run as efficiently and as safely as possible. We welcome competition to the industry and support the dynamics of a free market. We believe in price transparency and fair open markets. In our North American protein business, for example, Cargill consistently purchases a third of our cattle on a cash basis. We are also committed to empowering and improving the livelihoods of the people who grow and raise our food. Our partnerships with farmers and ranchers are critical in delivering quality, affordable protein to groceries and consumers across the US. We know how hard and cyclical the cattle industry is. 
it is critical to all of us that ranchers sustain their operations and navigate market volatility. Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member Thompson, we appreciate the work you and the members of this committee do to support America's farmers and ranchers. Cargill is a proud American company founded in 1865 in the farming community of Conover, Iowa, with the goal of providing markets for farmers. And from that day on, we've known that if producers aren't successful, our company won't be. Thank you for the opportunity to address the members of this committee, and I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you, Mr. McLean. And now, Mr. Schellpepper, please begin when you're ready. Good afternoon, Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Thompson, and members of the committee. Thank you for having me. My name is Tim Schellpepper. I've been part of the U.S. beef and food and agriculture industry for more than 35 years, dating back to my first job out of college in 1987. I joined JBS in 2017, and I became CEO of JBS USA this past January. I'm also a proud fourth-generation farmer. My wife of 31 years and I operate the farm that I grew up on, which my great-grandfather originally settled in Nebraska in 1887. Our land sits in the heart of cattle country, surrounded by farms and feedlots, many of which supply cattle to JBS. I am both a friend and a customer to many of my neighbors. JBS USA produces in Pilgrim's Pride, the second largest poultry producer in the United States. We employ 67,000 team members, mostly unionized across the country, and they, we contribute millions of dollars each day to local economies through purchases of livestock, poultry, and plant supplies. At JBS, we strive to create a better future. Our success has allowed us to strengthen many small towns and give back to our rural communities. We are investing $100 million to support local projects through our Hometown Strong program. We are building new recreation centers, improving access to affordable housing, and refurbishing schools and parks. We care about our team members and their families. We offer full benefits and recently dedicated more than $150 million in annualized wage increases to our employees in our beef division alone. Our average facility, our average facility wages are nearly $24 per hour with starting wages at or above $20 per hour. We've increased wages by more than 40% since 2017, and on average, our wages are 25 to 50% higher than many local businesses. We provide upfront free community college tuition for our team members and their dependents, with a goal for our program to become the largest privately funded free college community college initiative in America. JBS is dedicated to improving the sustainability of our operations. We've committed to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2040, and we'll invest $1 billion to reduce emissions from our facilities. By 2030, we will invest $100 million in on-farm research to help producers reduce their emissions. In recent months, we've contributed $1.3 million in climate change research projects in partnerships with NGOs and universities, including a $700,000 contribution to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln to help build a new feedlot innovation center. 
Now, I understand that one of the topics of this committee would like to address today is the pricing in the cattle and beef industries. Historically, cattle were sold in lots and every animal in the lot received the same average price. To achieve a better return on their investment, cattlemen created alternative marketing arrangements or AMAs with processors. AMAs allowed producers to realize premium prices for their investments in genetics, animal health, management, and marketing. They also help ensure consistent supply of quality cattle, which result in consistent supply of high quality beef for consumers. For our part, JBS purchases from cattle feeders and producers of all sizes in cash markets, auction barns, video auctions, and under AMAs. We are active in the cash market every day, and we will compete for quality cattle in the market wherever and however producers wish to sell them. As for the prices paid by consumers, inflation is a significant concern for the, across the entire U.S. economy. The prices for beef are no exception. It is important to note, however, that we do not, at JBS, we do not control retail prices for beef. We instead sell our products to wholesale groceries, wholesale prices to grocery stores, food service operators, and other intermediaries. And those prices have decreased this past year. Nonetheless, despite increases in the cost of labor, transportation materials since the beginning of the pandemic, as well as increased costs, our facilities have largely returned to pre-pandemic processing levels. This has created higher returns for producers and lower wholesale beef prices as cattle supply and processing demand come closer in balance. JBS is committed to supporting innovation, transparency, enhancing incentives to keep the U.S. cattle industry competitive for all participants. We will continue to invest in our people, our facilities, and our communities to help ensure a sustainable, affordable, and resilient beef supply. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Shellpepper. And now, Mr. Klein, please begin when you're ready. Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Thompson, and members of the committee, I'm the CEO and one of the owners of National Beef. We are the fourth largest packer with a market share of 14%. I'm happy to be here today to answer your questions and tell you about our company. I believe our story is a great example of what the current administration and others are encouraging in, to create additional competition in the beef packing industry. First, I would like to provide a background of myself. I grew up in Northwest Iowa and worked with hogs and cattle uh, before going to, to college. I started my career in the industry in 1980. In 1992, I had the opportunity to team up with others to buy a small outdated plant in Dodge City, Kansas that accounted for 1% of the industry capacity. The plant was going to be shut down. We knew that to succeed in a highly competitive low margin business, we had to develop a business model different from that of our larger competitors. Our vision was to create a unique alliance with cattle producers and link them with our customers who wanted a consistent supply of high quality beef. At the time, cattle were bought and sold in the cash market and brought the same price, regardless of quality. There was no economic incentive for cattle producers to invest in genetics or to improve their feeding regimen to enhance the taste and tenderness of beef. We developed a pricing grid that paid premiums to cattle producers who could deliver a higher quality animal than what we could buy in the cash market. Our business model worked. Although we were a smaller company with higher operating costs, we could compete effectively with the larger packers. In 1997, we were approached by U.S. Premium, a group that today represents a network of 2,400 cattle ranchers, farmers, and feedlot owners across 38 states. Their vision was aligned with ours, and they became a partner in the ownership of National Beef. Over time, using cattle performance data provided by us, 
Their members improved the quality of the cattle they produced. Today, U.S. premium beef provides us with over 1 million head of cattle per year, earning a premium on those cattle and also sharing in the profits of national beef. The beef industry in the U.S. consists of four segments, the cow-calf ranchers, the backgrounders, the feedlots, and the packers. Profitability in each segment varies based on the timing of the cattle cycle and each segment's unique supply and demand dynamics. The cattle industry is a commodity business in a free market system. Our objective is no different than that of the other segments. We strive to maximize our profits within the constraints of a competitive marketplace. For more than 30 years, cattle supplies in the U.S. have been declining. Beef packing capacity has also been declining, although at a slower rate. As a result of overcapacity, beef packer profits have historically averaged only two cents for every dollar in revenue. The imbalance became most severe in 2014 and 15, when cattle supplies declined to the lowest level in 60 years. Cattle prices rose to record levels, and industry capacity utilization dropped to almost 80%. In the case of national beef, we experienced record losses. In 2016, cattle supplies began increasing cyclically, and by 2019, capacity utilization had risen to 95%, a level of efficiency not seen in this industry for decades. Profits also increased, just as the laws of supply and demand would predict. In the summer of 2019, a fire at a large beef plant temporarily reduced industry capacity. Then in the spring of 2020, COVID-related disruptions further reduced capacity by as much as 50%, for several weeks. These events resulted in a backlog of almost 1 million head of cattle that were carried forward through the second half of 2020 and most of 2021. The excess supply has allowed national beef to operate at 100% of capacity for the last two years. On the demand side, COVID caused a change in consumer dining habits. Consumers made a choice of what protein they buy and what they're willing to pay for it. As they transitioned to eating more at home, their desire for beef increased and prices increased. When restaurants reopened in 2021, additional demand from food service buyers increased as they replenished their beef inventories, further adding upward price pressure. The combination of excess cattle supplies and unprecedented demand for beef resulted in record profits in 2020 and 21. Those dynamics are now changing, just as they have in previous cattle cycles. USDA data indicates that fed cattle supplies are peaking and will continue to decline over the next several years. There have also been indications of additional capacity being built, including our announcement of a new beef plant in Iowa. History teaches us that as cattle supplies decline cyclically and new capacity comes online, there will be a shift in profits to the cattle production segments of the industry. Today, U.S. beef enjoys a reputation as the highest quality beef in the world. Demand continues to grow both in the U.S. and globally. The opportunity for profit across all segments has never been better. Thank you for inviting me today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Klein. And now, Mr. King, please begin when you're ready. Mr. King, you may need to unmute. Mr. King. Can you hear me, uh, Chairman Scott? Yes, uh, we can hear you now, loud and clear. Welcome. My, apo my child, uh, apologies, uh, Chairman Scott, and uh, to the committee. Uh, no Chairman problem. Scott, uh, Ranking Member Thompson, members of the House Agriculture Committee, 
I do appreciate this opportunity to discuss the economics of our business. My name is Donnie King, and I've been a Tyson team member for almost 40 years. I started in Pine Bluff, Arkansas as an hourly team member on the production floor, and now proudly serve as president and chief executive officer. In our business, unprecedented market shocks have created an extraordinary strain across our operations and the global supply chain. This has reduced our ability to produce beef at sufficient quantities to meet record high consumer demand. Starting in early 2020, the pandemic impacted our ability to operate production facilities at full capacity. This was due in part to protocols we put in place to keep team members safe. We required our team members to stay home with pay if they were sick, tested positive, or were close contacts. We also had team members who stayed home to take care of their children and loved ones. In our beef business, these factors made it difficult to process all the cattle available on the market. This drove down, the, drove down the demand and prices for live cattle. At the same time, demand for beef skyrocketed as restaurants closed and Americans started cooking more meals at home. Simply put, production could not meet the consistently strong demand. Economists have agreed with this assessment, which underscores that the market, not Tyson, sets the price for cattle and beef. When a product is in oversupply, in this case, live cattle, the law of supply and demand drives down the prices for that product. And when a product is in strong demand, in this case, beef, the same law of supply and demand drives up prices for that product. Today, the situation is deepened by geopolitical issues, which are creating shortages of essential inputs such as grain. This results in higher costs, which is reflected in the prices American families pay at the grocery store. Some incorrectly suggest that the rise in beef prices is due to the consolidation of the beef industry, but the data doesn't support this claim. The concentration of the industry for commercial cattle among the four processors here today is 69% and has been virtually unchanged over the past 30 years. And in most of those 30 years, the profit margins of ranchers and cattle producers have been much higher than the low single digit margins we made as beef processors. In fact, in several years, ranchers made a historic profit on live cattle while Tyson either lost money or barely broke even. This too is a market at work. It is important to note that Tyson returns are not solely the result of prices customers pay. Other factors contribute including the mix of products we sell, the costs associated with regulations, operating more sustainably, and our efforts to compete for, uh, for labor. Today, Americans are demanding higher quality and variety, as well as convenience, and our customers are willing to pay for these across the food chain, benefiting both cattle producers and beef processors. We're also working hard to become a more efficient business by investing in automation and innovation. This not only results in a safer workplace, but also drives down operational costs, which in turn allows us to keep costs down for our customers and further invest our team members in our team members and our business. In places like Bowling Green, Kentucky, Macon, Georgia, and Humboldt, Tennessee, we're increasing production capacity and creating thousands of new jobs. Today, these jobs pay an average of $24 an hour, including full retirement and medical benefits or approximately $50,000 a year. Today, Tyson Foods operates in communities spanning 30 states. In these communities, we invest more than $15 billion every year 
with over 11,000 independent farmers and ranchers who supply us with the cattle, pig, chickens, and turkeys that we need. I wanna to say to them and all who work so hard to keep food on America's table, thank you. For many, including myself, Tyson has provided more than just a paycheck. Our company helps its team members and their families achieve their own dreams by giving them access to opportunity. I started at Tyson nearly four decades ago because I wanted a job. I stayed because of the company we are, the values we hold, and the important work we are privileged to do. Again, I appreciate this opportunity and I welcome your questions. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. King. And thank all four of you for your excellent testimonies. And now, at this time, we'll go right into our questions. Members will be recognized for questions in order of seniority, alternating between majority and minority. And you will be recognized for five minutes each in order to allow us to get in as many questions as possible. And once again, please, please keep your microphones muted until you are recognized in order to minimize noise. And now I will start the questions. And this is such an urgent hearing as we just previously heard, the real challenges that our ranchers are facing. I don't know if you all as the CEOs were watching, but it was very impactful and effective. And our ranchers and those who form the first phase of our food supply line, our beef supply line, are facing critical issues. And I appreciate deeply you CEOs coming and, and participating because we will not be able to find the right solution to help this first part of the supply chain which you critically need, because without the meat, there are no meat packers. With that, I want to start with recognizing the three major components of our hearing. First, our consumers. Second, our ranchers. And third, our packers. And we are going to be examining questions about supply, about price, about affordability, and also about whether our ranchers who produce the cattle can afford to farm, to stay in business, as we heard from the panel today, the pressures are so great that there have been efforts of suicide. When that happens, you know we've got to move to correct this imbalance. 
First, let me just say a few words about our first part, consumers. Right now, the consumer's cost for beef is $7 per pound right now at the grocery store. The price of beef has climbed 18% so far in this year, making it very hard for parents to afford beef for their children, for their families. Next, the ranchers. Our ranchers, our precious ranchers. Our committee heard earlier today from some of our nation's ranchers who, while putting in their heart and soul, I grew up on a farm. Farming is heart and soul year after year, and nowhere is that more expressful than with the raising of cattle. From the calves spending time in all manner of weather, taking care of them, free from disease, so that they can make it for the four or five years it takes to get them to you for that beef packers. And yet, while our grocery bills and our ranchers are being forced to sell their cattle at a loss, our four meatpacking companies are making record profits. In fact, your companies reported over $15 billion in profits in this last year alone. And I don't argue or argue with the ability to earn profits. I'm a businessman myself. That is why you are in business. The third component of this equation is about the four packers. Now, Mr. King, in your testimony, you discuss the labor shortages caused by COVID-19, which resulted in a reduction of facility capacity and an oversupply of cattle which caused the swift drop in market price that you paid for cattle. So my question to you, Mr. King, is, is it correct then to say that labor shortages caused by COVID-19 were responsible for the prices in the beef and cattle markets and your record profits? Mr. King? Is it correct then to say that labor shortages caused by COVID-19 were responsible for the prices in the beef and cattle markets and also responsible 
for your record profits? Uh, Chairman Scott, uh, I hope you can hear me at this point. Yes, uh, I can. Um, so uh, thank you for that question, and I'm sorry for the technical difficulties that we continue to have. Uh, but let me, what I testified in my opening statements, uh, I stand by. Uh, the, uh, the unforeseen Thank shocks of, of the pandemic that we saw uh, was, you know, it was a significant issue for us. Uh, it was, uh, and for all industry, many businesses closed or idled or reduced capacity, and many, many uh, sheltered in place stayed home, uh, as was testified by one of my, uh, one of my uh, competitors earlier. Uh, we were also at the top of the cattle cycle. And uh, my memory is that we had about 6 million head more cattle at the top Mr. of the cycle when the pandemic hit. Mr. King, I want to get to the crust of the matter here. Um, but these factors that you have given, they really don't tell the full truth here. Because from my own research, your profits are largely determined by what is called the meat margin. And the meat margin is uh, the difference between the prices your four packing companies pay for cattle and then the prices that you charge for beef. Now, I'd like to display a chart if if we can look at the board there, this chart is based upon USDA data that shows that your meat margin has been raising steadily since 2015. 2015, uh, Mr. King, is five years before the pandemic began in 2020 and well before the supply chain disruption. In, in 2015, the year your meat margin started to soar, allegations were made against you that your four companies entered into an agreement to reduce supply and push profits up. And I think we all know that he who controls supply controls the price. So let me ask you to respond to that. Uh, Chairman Scott, thank you for the question. Uh, there are a number of things, that, if, if I could unpack that for you. From 2015 until the pandemic hit, uh, uh, in tw 2015, we were coming off the trough of the most recent uh, bottom of the cycle, mm -hmm. uh, where uh, herd liquidation and drought uh, in 13 created that situation. So the, the supply of cattle were very tight. Uh, so you're starting to see herd rebuild and you're starting to see capacity utilization go up uh, in plants. And, uh, and at the same time, uh, you know, the quality of beef uh, expected by consumers continued to 
to change as so well. that and, uh, allow me because I wanted to uh, get to the point my time is sort of running down and I wanted to ask before uh, my time g- gets down I want to ask each of you so we can get a 100% clear on this issue. This is a primary issue here that we need to clear up. And that is this. Is there or was there ever an agreement between your four companies to cooperate together on issues impacting supply or pricing? And I need a yes or no, and also let me remind you that you're testifying under oath. I need to know if there ever was an agreement with you to set this up, because the chart clearly states that it was 2015 and there was an abrupt, immediate charge up. And, and when you look at this chart, it explains why questions are being raised. How can this jettison up? And it started well before the COVID-19 of which you say caused the problem or caused the record amount of profit. So I want to get the yes or no and whether or not you all had agreement on pricing. No. No. Not no. that I am worth All right. Each of you have said that no. And you all deny that you acted improperly or illegally. But none of you has been able to explain this meat margin chart and why your shares kept rising since 2015. Now, it is very important that we get a correct and honest answer here because this is the crust of the issue. Let me tell you, it, it, this can't possibly happen in a competitive market. I've, I've studied antitrust behavior at the Wharton School of Finance at the University of Pennsylvania. So I can tell you that this is exactly the type of activity that has caused many others on both sides of the aisle to raise these questions. And so I wanted to get that out of the way and make sure that you've answered it under oath to answer those allegations. 
So with that, I will now yield to the ranking member for questions or the gentleman from Arkansas. Uh, thank Mr. you, Mr. Crawford. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Will I be allotted 10 minutes for my questioning? Just curious. Yes, you may. 10 minutes? Yes. 10. All right. Thank you. Uh, I'll start with Mr. King. Uh, concentration in the meat industry has stayed relatively constant for more than 25 years. And over that period, meat prices have moved up and they've moved down. Despite that fact, the Biden administration has been falsely blaming packers for recent skyrocketing inflation. Even Larry Summers, the Secretary of the Treasury for President Clinton and the Director of the National Economic Council for President Obama, recently tweeted, rising demand with capacity and labor constraints are fully sufficient to account for what we observe in meatpacking, administration claims notwithstanding, end quote. Mr. King, your thoughts on that statement? Uh, thank you, Congressman. Uh, a great question. Um, very simply, uh, experts, policymakers, government regulators agree. Uh, the combination of supply, consumer demand, pandemic disruptions, and geopolitical unrest is reason enough uh, for the inflation. And and you referenced uh, uh, Larry Sum Summers, uh, former Treasury Secretary, uh, but we also have uh, the testimony of U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Uh, we have David Anderson, uh, a livestock economist at Texas A&M University. They all agree that what we're seeing uh, from the sudden shocks to the economy uh, is expected. Thank you, Mr. King. I appreciate your insights there. I want to switch gears just a little bit, uh, direct this question to Mr. Uh, uh, David McClennan, Cargill CEO. Um, you believe it's okay to discriminate against an individual based on their race, color, creed, or national origin? No. You don't. Um, I have in my possession um, some communication from Cargill that indicates otherwise. It says, working together with Target, Cargill has developed a supply chain to better connect black cotton producers with key markets and suppliers. This initiative was born out of comments we gather in listening sessions with black producers and supports ongoing work around black farmer equity. Through this program, we're able to pay participating farmers a premium with no additional discounts for quality. We move cotton from the farm to our customers who are key suppliers for Target. It's been a successful program, but we continue to scale. Now, how do you square that with your position that you don't discriminate based on an individual's uh, race, color, creed, national origin? Congressman, you're referring to our Black Farmer Equity Initiative, something that Cargill is very proud of. Mm -hmm. As you likely know, less than one, roughly half a percent of farmers in this country are black. And so as, as part of our diversity, equity, inclusion efforts, we're supporters of our black equity, farmer equity. Are you including, including Hispanic farmers? Are you including Asian American farmers or just targeting black farmers in this case? Are you, can, are you including other commodities? You, you had a laundry list of commodities that you uh, produce or that you process that you mentioned in your testimony. Are all of those going to be paid premiums as well? And are all minority farmers going to be included or just black farmers? Are we also including uh, women farmers? Well, it depends on the country. If you're talking about in the United States, we certainly will consider other other focuses like the Black Farmer Equity Initiative. Again, something we're proud of. And I would add that it is something that our customer target has asked for and that their consumers are asking for in terms of more diversity in their supply chains and with such an underrepresented minority, such as Black Americans being involved in farming 
we feel this is the right thing to do. What about underrepresented minorities, for example, Hispanic farmers or women farmers? Has there been any uh, desire from, say, companies like Target to improve um, outcomes for other minority farmers? Over a half of the world's farmers are women. So if you're referring to the United States, we certainly will consider. What does this policy extend to? Is this a, a African-American farmers? Is this black American farmers that you're that you're extending this policy to? So in that case, what's the ratio of women to men farmers? What's the ratio of Hispanic to non-Hispanic farmers? What's the ratio of Asian-American farmers to non-Asian-American farmers? Are we really going after a diversion, a diversity and, and equity? Are we, are, we, are we going after one specific demographic or does this include everybody? At this point, it's one specific demographic. It's less than one year old and it is part of our DEI focus. So to expand it to other ethnic or gender-based groups, certainly that's something that we'll consider. I don't have the statistics uh, well, I have another concern moment. in this statement that says that you're, you're not making any discounts for quality. So that's almost an incentive to produce lower quality. And then you, further on, you say we, we continue, uh, you plan to uh, scale that program. Can you elaborate on that, how you're going to not pay a discount or uh, uh, deduct a discount for lower quality? You're paying a premium to the market, and then you plan to scale this. Do you not think that's going to have some impact on the market? I think the integrity of the farmers that we deal with will will show that they'll not only produce equal or better quality from what they have or what the market is producing. So I have confidence in the farmers that we're dealing with that the quality will not suffer. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, my time has expired. I, I've used my five minutes. The gentlewoman from North Carolina, Ms. Adams, who is also the vice chair of a committee on agriculture is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, uh, Chairman Scott and uh, Ranking Member uh, Thompson. Thank you as well. Um, uh, and to the witnesses, thank you for being here. I do want to ask the witnesses about your workforce, the people who work in your plants to provide food for America and the world. I understand that there are worker shortages uh, that are exacerbating production and and it's one part of the puzzle that needs to be addressed. Uh, as you may know, I am uh, chair of the House um, Education and, and Labor Workforce Protection Subcommittee. And so as we continue to navigate this pandemic, I want to know what specifically each of you are doing to protect the workers who work on your assembly lines. So can you tell the committee uh, again, and, and if you can be specific, I'd appreciate that, what benefits are available to these workers? And were they enhanced during COVID and are they still enhanced? And you can talk about the healthcare, uh, 401k plans, uh, paid time off, et cetera. So Mr. McLennan, uh, let's start with you. Uh, hi, Representative Adams. As I mentioned in my opening statement, we have ex significantly expanded the benefits that we've paid to our line workers. The food supply of this country would not have survived if it weren't for the workers in our plants throughout the country. We have enhanced our 401k benefits. We, we have enhanced our health care benefits. And we were one of the first companies to take uh, decisive action when COVID broke out in early 2020 to make sure that to, to move quickly to close down facilities if we had to or put in protective measures. For example, plastic screens between workers on the line 
or even uh, plastic screens at, at the lunch tables, which was a place pr prior to COVID that was very social for our workers. And I would also quote Mark Perrone, who is the president of the UFCW, and he testified in front of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform in 2020. And he said, some responsible employers like Cargill have done what is right. It's one of our core values, and we are committed to the workers and our plants, not only in the, in the meat industry in the U.S., but around the world. Okay, can we move on to uh, uh, Mr. Shellpepper? Uh, yes, thank you, Congresswoman, for the, uh, for the question. So uh, I'm very proud of our workforce because we went through that very difficult time. And we had three goals at JBS. First and foremost was protect our workforce. Secondly was to recognize our role in the nation's food supply. And thirdly was to re, uh, maintain employment and benefits for all of our employees. We put through uh, s several measures uh, that to keep our workforce safe, beginning with screening at our plants, dividers in our work of our work in our workstations, um, air filtration systems, hospital grade air filtration systems that we put inside of the common areas of our plants, cafeterias and locker rooms if you will. Uh, we had also had in, um, bonuses that we paid out uh, to our team members that were not tied to attendance. Um, and then just last year, we put through two sizable wage increases for our employees. And we believe that we are in a leading position on wages for, for our workers. Um, right. relative okay. Yeah, I want, I've got, uh, I'd like to ask Mr. Klein and, and uh, King as well. Um, you know, I want my time to run out. So uh, if we can, if we can move on, I'd appreciate that. And I apologize. So Mr. Mr. Klein, what about you? Yes, uh, we instituted uh, several measures, the same as others have done. We uh, put workplace partitions in, in uh, our production floor and in our break rooms. We instituted screening for employees coming into the plants. Uh, we also provided testing facilities uh, at all, all our locations so that employees could be tested. Uh, it, the results of that were the uh, positive rate of, among our employees 18 and over was almost half of what it was in the communities uh, where our plants are. So we feel okay. like we've done very effective uh, Great. Um, uh, thank you, Mr. King. Um, can you um, tell me a little bit about what you've been doing? Uh, Congresswoman, um, uh, in, in terms of our team members, uh, their safety, their health, uh, and their families is our highest priority, has always been highest priority. We have 140,000 of them uh, across Tyson. Uh, we, uh, my colleagues here have talked a lot about all the, uh, the things and measures and protocols. In fact, my testimony earlier talked about the fact that capacity utilization was negatively impacted because of the protocols we put in place barriers, social distancing, temperature checking, uh, testing, and then uh, then uh, uh, most recently the uh, vaccine mandate that we put in place. But in addition to that, we realize that uh, t uh, you know team members can work wherever they want to work, and we have to give them a reason to work for Tyson. And uh, over the last year, we've been working to that end. Uh, we've done pay increases as well. Uh, we're 24 bucks an hour, which is about $50,000 a year, which is uh, very similar to that of a college graduate of $55,000 a year. We think we provide good jobs and uh, we've recently announced uh, some of the things we're doing around immigration and paying for legal fees and trying to, uh, to help uh, those get uh, legal status and, 
and uh, try to help with okay. life skills for team members, uh, things like English and math and, you know, how to do a family budget. Uh, okay, high me, school. Mr. Cohen, uh, the general lady's time has expired. We want to get as oh, many members in as possible. So right, now I recognize the gentleman from Tennessee, Mr. J. Jarlay. For five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Scott, and, and thank you to our witnesses for appearing today. Cow-calf producers in my district are frustrated from astronomically rising input costs to labor shortage to supply chain constraints and an administration that seems more focused on chi climate change and increasing overburdensome regulations. Our cattle ranchers and farmers are hurting. Family farmers are shuddering across the country as they face diminishing margins and already difficult economy. While cattle markets are increasingly complex and incredibly complex, I don't need to tell you all that any disruptions at the packing sector impact cattle prices. We've seen price disparities between box beef and live cattle facing several black swan events. And while I believe there are many factors at play here, including record levels of inflation that this administration is doing nothing about, I do want to discuss cattle markets. Uh, after conferring with Tennessee, Tennessee Cattlemen and, and Charles Horde, uh, we want to know what steps have you taken as an industry to minimize the impact of market disruptions, whether those be from fires, pandemic like COVID-19, which at its peak took roughly 40% of the processing capacity offline, or other unforeseen factors that impact cattle producers and profitability. And I'll open that to any of you who'd like to comment. Thank you for the question. Uh, in, in, in terms of the steps that we've taken, uh, first of all, the, uh, the fire in, in the Holcomb plant, the, the rest of the industry uh, made up a lot of that lost production by running extra hours, Saturday hours, when normally we would have uh, given our employees time off. That uh, was a, a big factor. Uh, in terms of the pandemic, there was not a lot we could do. We ran as many cattle as we could. We shut down one of our plants for two weeks during that time period and opened it back up as soon as we were able to. But our other plants uh, in Kansas, we had uh, weeks where we were running 50% of capacity and contemplated shutting down uh, one shift. Uh, so uh, when we have these events, uh, there's not the ability to completely uh, mitigate it. And it happened across the whole industry. Yeah. And things like this will happen again. And so I guess, what are we doing to mitigate that in the future? Anyone else like to comment? Uh, Congressman uh, uh, Donnie King with Tyson Foods. Uh, you know, as, as a company, uh, we have often annually do risk assessments where we assess what risk uh, we face and what are those mitigation steps. Uh, I got to tell you, uh, in conjunction with our board and uh, leadership team, we, uh, we did not anticipate the pandemic. So uh, there have been a number of key learnings from that. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's an opportunity to go and to get better, uh, but, uh, and we have, uh, but uh, uh, we're, we're assessing this and future uh, risk uh, similar to this, these black swan events to try to protect our company. Okay. Uh, we heard suggestions from the producers in our first panel, but I'd like to hear from you all now. Um, what steps do you think can be taken to ensure profitability for all sectors of the cattle industry, including cow-calf producers? Thank you for the question. I'd like to answer that. I believe we have to look at the situation today in the context of the history. 
And if you go back before 2016, the packing segment was the smallest profit margin of any segment of the industry, mainly because of overcapacity in the industry. In 2016 forward, capacity had already been taken out. We saw a dramatic increase in the supply of cattle. Uh, as a result of that, margin structure shifted to our segment. But historically, uh, it, it was resided, the cow-calf uh, producers had the biggest share of the, of the profit pie, so to speak, uh, prior to 2016. Okay, uh, because I've just got 50 seconds, Mr. Klein, I wanted to uh, ask you one more question. Some of the folks continually are pushing for increase in diversified slaughter capacity across the country. They're also pushing for government-mandated levels of cash trades by packers. Your testimony mentions the importance of alternative marketing agreements in allowing your company to grow and, and compete with larger uh or the largest packers. Do you think AMAs will be vital to new slaughter facilities coming online across the country? I think for a new facility to survive, they've got to offer something different. And one of that attributes is quality. The, the demand for quality beef is very high, and AMAs are a very important uh, piece of that. Uh, in terms of the cash market question, more cash trade today will not help the producer. Uh, today, Many of the cattle that are brought in on AMAs or other agreements are because the producer wants a guaranteed home for their cattle. Okay, my time has expired. I yield back, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. The gentleman from California, Mr. Kana, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I wanted to start briefly by going over Mr. Crawford's exchange with Mr. McLennan. I was a little bit surprised that he was criticizing you, Mr. McLennan, for having a program to seek black farmers. As you know, in the 1920s, 14% of farmers in this country were black. That is almost down to 1% today. And there's a simple reason why that's the case. is because the United States Department of Agriculture discriminated against black farmers. Mr. McClellan, can you explain to this committee the history in this country with black farmers and why it's perfectly appropriate for your company to be working with black farmers given that history? Well, Representative, you cited, I think, the most powerful uh, components of that story of black farmers in this country uh, over the last 100 years, from 14% to uh, less than 1%. And I think we're all very uh, well-versed in the aspects of history, uh, in the aspects of, of, of our culture, which have you know, contributed to various uh, aspects of farming industry. But, but our belief and our commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion is not just within the walls of our company, but also, it is also in our supply chains. And as I said to the representative who posed the question originally, our, this is what our customers might want. We believe this is what our consumers want. And basically, it's the right thing to do to support the black farmer community, which has shrunk dramatically over that period of time, and to give them support so that they can grow their ranks and frankly, provide more jobs within, that, within the farming community also, and not, not to mention the black farming community. Well, Mr. McMullen, we, we may have our disagreements on some of the issues here, but I want to applaud you for that and applaud your commitment to that. I think that's the right thing to do uh, as Americans, and uh, I, for one, am glad that you're doing that. Uh, I want to turn Thank you. 
I want to turn to uh, the issue of intimidation by meat packers towards producers. Senator Fisher entered a letter into the record just yesterday from Nebraska cattlemen saying, quote, none of our producer members were encouraged to testify, were willing to put themselves out front uh, for fear of possible retribution by other market participants. I assume all of you, all the CEOs I'm hoping, will commit today to encourage producers to openly share their stories about industry and meat production in general without any fear of retaliation. It can be a simple yes or no. Uh, Mr. McClellan, we can start with you. Would you commit to that? Yes. I, I can't imagine anything happening that would discourage the, the exchange of information. Could the other CEOs just go, Mr. Yes, of course. Uh, anyone? Yes. Uh, absolutely. I appreciate that. Yes. The one other issue I want to get to, uh, as you know, a lot of livestock producers are working under contracts the grower takes on uh, a lot of the environmental liability for the operation. Uh, however, many of your companies are actually uh, dictating or working with the producers on how to grow the animal, how to feed them. And right now, the farmer basically gets all the risk from the environmental permits, and the companies don't. One way forward uh, could be if each of your companies would support legislation requiring co-permitting with these producers or farmers on a contract. Would you be open to a co-permitting framework? Mr. Klein? Thank you for the question. Uh, first of all, we don't deal directly with the cow-calf segment of the industry, and they're where the permits uh, are uh, important. Uh, we are two steps away from that. So in terms of uh, your question whether we would support it, uh, I need to know more about it to, to uh, understand it better. Anyone else uh, want to jump in in possibly supporting uh, co-permitting? I would, uh, I would echo what um, uh, Mr. Klein had to say and that uh, we'd need to know more about it. Uh, uh, but uh, we tend to buy, uh, um, you know, a large percentage of our ca uh, cattle through uh, feeders as well. Well, I'd appreciate if we can consider something like that. I think it would go a long way in, in helping farmers. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Akana. And I just want to uh, say I agree with you in complimenting um, Cargo for their help of black farmers. Thank you for that. Now the general lady from Missouri, Ms. Hartzler, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you all uh, for being here. Very, very important topic. Uh, in the last panel, we heard testimony that half a million ranchers have gone out of business over the last few years. That's an average of 17,000 cattle operations a year, 40 cattle operations uh, every day. Um, so I would like to hear your thoughts really on what is your vision for the cattle industry in the years to come. Um, many of the other segments for the agriculture, you know, have gone to vertical integration, uh, with poultry operations, pork operations, where, where, uh, some of you, uh, you know, own the whole uh, thing, you own the animals from the beginning till slaughter. Is that what you envision eventually going to happen to the cattle market? Or what would you like to see as far as the cattle industry looking like 10, 15 years from now? So uh, since Mr. Klein's the only one here in person, maybe you could start with you. Thank you for the question. 
I believe that the uh, future of the beef industry is it's very important that all segments work together. Uh, the cattle numbers, ranches have dropped, cow numbers have dropped since 1980. But it was really as a result of uh, reduction, reduction in demand for, for beef across the globe it, due to health issues at the time, and also ranchers' decisions to repurpose land. Uh, at the same time, we saw an improvement in the efficiency at the ranches, being able to put more pounds on uh, cattle than, than ever before. So as I look forward, I believe that we're on the right track in terms of creating a quality product that is demanded across the globe. The profit opportunity today in the, across all segments is greater than it's ever been. And that's because of the quality of beef we have in the system and the demand growth that we've seen, particularly in the last two years. So you believe the current model of cow-calf uh, owned by individual family farmers it will continue 10, 15 years from now, and that's what you'd like to see? Yeah, the average herd size today is 43 head uh, ranch size, so mm -hmm. it's very small, and they're not going to make a, a living on just that, so they've got to do something else. But uh, it's a very non-integrated industry, and I believe it's going to stay that way. I don't see packers owning ranches. Um, so I think what we, this, the model that's in place today is a good model. Uh, the profits will shift back and forth. 2014 and 15, all the profits went to the cow-calf uh, segment, and we were losing money. So these are the cycles that, uh, that we deal with every day. Mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Shellpepper, what's your thoughts about the vision for the future? Again, uh, thank you, Congresswoman. This is a this is a cyclical business, and we're coming now into a cycle uh, where, you know, the, perhaps the profitability will will switch in the in the chain. Um, you know, our our model at JBS is we buy um, not from the ranchers, but we buy from the cattle feeders, and we we buy the cattle how they want to sell them, whether that's on a uh, cash market, whether that's on an AMA, whatever that might look like. We will follow their lead in those discussions. Um, relative to uh, JDS owning ranches, particularly to, to your question, no, I don't anticipate uh, that happening in the future. Um, I know I'd like to hear from the others, but I, I want to move on second part of my question. What can you do to help producers stay profitable? Or do you believe it's hands-off, uh, the market will just uh, work its way out, and you have no role in that? So... I guess we'll go to Mr. McLennan. Yes, uh, thanks, Congress, Congresswoman. Uh, we will continue to provide markets for the ranchers to sell their cattle. I do believe uh, that the markets, as several witnesses from the last panel, as well as this panel, have testified that the cyclicality of this industry is starting to turn. Uh, one of the witnesses from the prior panel talked about an eight to 10 year cycle, and we are starting to see that the market, the supply and demand components and the prices in the cattle market are, are starting to change. We can't survive as an industry. This country can't feed itself without the small family ranchers and farms that we depend on. Cargill was a, is a family owned company founded in 1865. So we need family farmers and family ranchers in the industry. And, and we consider them our partners. Well, thank you very much. Uh, my time is out, but uh, 
I appreciate uh, what you do and, and hope that we'll be able to keep uh, the cattlemen viable for years to come. Thank you. You'll back. Thank you. And now the gentleman from California, Mr. Panetta, is now recognized for five minutes. Great. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And thanks to our witnesses uh, for participating in this hearing today and appreciate your testimony and information that you are providing. Um, I hail from the Central Coast of California. Uh, we don't have that many cattle. We don't have that much pork. We don't have that many chickens. Uh, but I can tell you, we got a lot of specialty crops. And I think you know as well as I do that our, our issues are still similar. And one of the most pressing issues that I think we have is the labor, or I should say the lack of labor. Uh, and so I'd like to kind of start off by focusing on that. And Mr. King, I'll go ahead and start with you. Um, <clears throat> obviously, we've heard a lot about labor availability problems and packing plants even before COVID hit. How did labor availability affect you during the last two years? And what is your labor situation today? And I think I have my recommendations as to what Congress can do or what this administration could do. What do you think we can do here in Washington, D.C. to alleviate packing plant labor shortages? Uh, thank you, Congressman. And um, there, you know, to be honest with you, there's not a lot uh, uh, more important than uh, being able to attract and retain uh, great talent. And, and so we talk about that so much here at Tyson. Uh, we realize today that, uh, that uh, those who choose to work for us uh, have options. They can work just about anywhere they want to work today and, and make a life. And uh, so what we have made a concerted effort to do is to give them a reason to work for us through pay and benefits. Uh, uh, if they are, you know, we, we got people from 160 different countries speaking 50 plus languages across our uh, company. And uh, so we do things like teach basic life skills, uh, but we recently announced uh, investing in, in education uh, from life skills all the way to uh, upper level degrees in college where we would pay that. And, and uh, you know, we've also done that in conjunction uh, with uh, historically black colleges and universities as well. So we're proud of that and investing in it, but very simply what we have to do is to create a more attractive place to work. And, and, and we recently invested in and broke ground on our newest childcare facilities in Humboldt, Tennessee. I was there with the governor of Tennessee when we did that. Uh, and team members in some subsets are telling us that's critical uh, to be able to get them back in the workplace. So we're investing in that. And, and it's a great, uh, uh, to your question, it is a great example of the private and public sector working together uh, to, to solve a problem. And so we're, we're, uh, we're piloting that. Uh, we're expecting really uh, great things from that. But that's just one of the tools that we're using to try to create a better place to work. Uh, we're also doing things like creating flexible work schedules uh, uh, for team members so that uh, we can find uh, when they want to work, what works around their life. And, and everybody's in, in different stages of life. And, and so we try to accommodate those to be real be real candid, we've had to become far more flexible than at any other time in my near 40 years uh, uh, in, in the business. And, and uh, you know, just the diversity of the workforce that we have, I mean, we're proud of that and we're proud of what that brings to the whole, to the whole Tyson team. And uh, so a lot of good is coming out of uh, uh, the last couple of years. Uh, we're better 
Uh, we're a better company as a result of that. It's been extremely uh, challenging, uh, but uh, we will be better going forward from having gone through this and having to deal with these issues. Understandable. Uh, I got I got one hit one more area, and that's obviously supply chain issues, uh, especially with your exports. And how have they been impacted due to the delays? that I think all of all of our industries have experienced. And obviously you're familiar with the Ocean Shipping Reform Act. Uh, that's something you would so you support, I imagine. Uh, Congressman, yes, we do support that. And I would just thank uh, uh, those on this committee and, and members for supporting that. Uh, that was that was extremely helpful and timely. Uh, it was a it was a large issue. Uh, but to your prior question around exports, uh, you know, in the uh, Shanghai port today, we are uh, we are seeing ships back up, and uh, and if I get into the details behind that, from what I'm from our uh, team on the ground, it has less to do with the ability to unload a ship, but has more to do with the ability to get trucks that can move in in country uh, with those goods and services, and and so how has it impacted us specifically? Uh, we've had to sell products into other markets uh, for a period of time. So until that cleans up, until the lockdown is over, until those problems uh, uh, are solved. Great. I'm out of time. Thank you. Thanks to all of you. I yield back, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you. And now I recognize the gentleman from California, Mr. LaMalfa. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, to Mr. McLennan. Um, I was out of the committee for a while, so pardon me if this has been done, but uh, emphasize uh, um, ranchers and be, being able to continue to operate. I mean, that's that's just the plus or minus question from these days is like, are they even going to be around much longer with costs of everything, costs of energy being uh, up and down, uh, the, the ability to deliver their stock to farther and farther distances with consolidation. So um, earlier we, we had producers speak that didn't seem to believe that uh, that the business was going to work to help to sustain the growers much longer, withstand market volatility, et cetera. So uh, you, Mr. McLean, or others on the panel, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on how do the growers actually going to be able to sustain. I don't want to hear just, oh, it's cyclical, because this is the worst cycle maybe ever right now with what they're facing and all the things are lined up against them politically and costs. So how are you going to have any growers left after another couple of years? You know, we face drought yeah. in the West, feed prices, lack of free feed, whatever, please. Yeah, I, I think, Congressman LaMalfa, I, I mentioned that perhaps you, are, you were out of the room, but this industry and can't survive without the ranchers and farmers supporting it. And the American food supply has proven to be system has proven to be incredibly resilient, as we saw in the last two and a half years. But I think some of it is the cyclicality, which you alluded to. And one of the witnesses at this morning's panel alluded to the fact that the cycle is almost predictably eight to 10 years and that we are at the almost exactly at 10 years. And we are seeing evidence that economics are starting to shift. And we saw economics in the inverse relationship in 2013 and 2014. I think innovation is another theme in terms of creating efficient feed solutions for our, for our ranchers and for our cow cap producers to help them increase yields. But we all have a vested interest in the beef supply chain 
to sir, ensure. Sir, let me, let me, I'm sorry, my time's you know, limited. So oh, let me cut in there. Is it, uh, it's existential for them right now. There's many that are not going to be, we're talking five generation ranches and such that uh, they're, up, they're up against the edge on this. So I want to know what is the uh, processing side of the industry going to do to help them be there? Because we know if they're not growing it, you don't have anything to process. I, as, a, as a farmer myself, I get that the processors always have to have something to run through, yet we're always the ones that get paid last at the farm gate. So wh- what is the plan that's going to, you know, you say innovation. Well, that's down the road. I mean, talking right now, these guys are going to be gone soon with everything they're facing. What are you doing there right now? I think we're, we're continuing to provide markets for their products. We're continuing to, I think innovation isn't down the road. I think it's here. And as I had said in my opening statement, we are anywhere from 30 to 35% buyers in the cash markets, which I know is something that many people have been speaking about. Others on the panel? Yes, let me comment on that. The cow-calf segment, again, we don't deal directly with them, but they are a vital part of the the whole system, and they have to be healthy. They do have the opportunity to retain ownership of that calf all the way through the system, all the way through processing and on to the customers. So that opportunity exists today. As I said earlier, the profit across all segments has never been higher it's at least three or four hundred dollars ahead higher than it was even five years ago, and I, as we go forward, as the profits shift back to the production segments, the cow calf segment is going to benefit from that certainly. Well, the profit's not there this year. There's there's auctions fixing to happen for a lot of our, folk, our longtime ranching families. So what do you say about this year? Two thousand twenty-two. Cattle prices are, are going up, which means calf prices will go up. So the cow-calf producer will get more for his product going forward than he has the last few years. All right. Uh, is Mr. Shellpepper still online here? Yes, I am. Uh, Congressman, to answer your question, thank you. The best thing that we can do is to run our plants at capacity or add capacity. And at JBS, we are adding capacity to our Grand Island, Nebraska plant. We're also adding capacity to our Omaha, Nebraska plant. Um, and we've taken some very aggressive steps that I, that I could walk you to the group through at some point in time on what we've done to, to staff our facility. How about, how about the distance involved for, you know, Nebraska is a long ways from uh, many, many, uh, many, many ranchers. How, how are we doing to, we need to close that transportation gap? Anybody? Well, Congressman, I'll speak for JBS. We operate plants from Arizona all the way through to Pennsylvania. So we believe that we have opportunities directly to our plants, but we are in several hundred sale barns every single year buying cattle. Okay, thank you. Mr. Chairman, I'll yield back. Appreciate it. Thank you. And now I recognize our ranking member, the gentleman from Pennsylvania, Mr. Thompson. Chairman, thank you so much. Chairman, thank you all for, for being here and your testimony on the second panel. Mr. Klein, as your testimony points out, fed cattle are not the only input for the beef packing industry. Uh, labor, packaging, transportation, regulatory compliance, and capital are all necessary parts of the process as well. Can you talk us through which of those inputs are currently having the biggest impact on your bottom line and the ultimate price of beef? Transportation costs have gone up 40%. 
in the last year. Labor costs have gone up 30% in the last year. That's $82 ahead that we've got to pass through to the consumer or back to uh, the price of cattle that we pay for cattle. Those are the two single biggest cost components that we have and the most that affect our business and has uh, the biggest impact today. Well, thank you. Any of the, uh, uh, Mr. Shellpepper, uh, Mr. King, uh, Mr. McLennan, uh, would you, any of you care to weigh in with your, your thoughts on that? Uh, for JBS, transportation, transportation has been a significant cost increase as well. Um, so I'll leave it at that, Congressman. Uh, Congressman, um, in, in terms of Tyson, uh, you know, virtually everything in the supply chain is increased. Uh, you know, we've seen uh, we've seen uh, inflation like we've not seen in uh, in generations. And uh, but if I look at specifically grain, for example, corn is up 127 uh, percent. Soybeans are up 90 percent. Uh, uh, Diesel is up 104 percent and even shipping containers uh are up 68%. So, so there's a, a lot there that have gone up and uh, I could list more, but it, it might be easier to give you a list of things that haven't gone up. Yeah, unfortunately, I, I don't agree with you. That'd be a shorter list. Uh, and frankly, I'm very concerned with the uh, Biden administration's regulatory agenda from bowing down to unions on time-tested line speed regulations uh, to rushing ahead with decades-old uh, packers and stockyards regulations that have been misleadingly touted as a solution to everything from volatile prices to industry consolidation. I'm particularly concerned that this heavy-handed regulatory approach may discourage the development and use of innovative industry solutions that could unlock not only price efficiencies, but a number of other benefits related to food safety, the climate, uh, employee wellness, even animal welfare. Uh, to any of the panelists who are willing to engage, how important is innovation to keeping your companies competitive? And are you concerned with our current regulatory trajectory and how that may impact uh, negatively uh, the ability to innovate? Uh, Congressman, uh, I, would, I will start and try to make a few comments around that. Innovation in supply chain uh, is going to be critical going forward. And, and, and a number of people this morning testified that uh, uh, on their farm or ranch, uh, it's it's not their it's not the same as it was for their dad or the granddad uh, or those who started. Um, and I think we have to start with the consumer and work our way back through the supply chain. Uh, those consumer preferences are changing uh, almost daily. Um, if you look at the data, if uh, like choice and uh, prime uh, grades are, you know, 20 years ago were like 65%, and today they're at 85%. That's because consumers are demanding a better quality uh, beef and a better eating experience. And you're going to see that uh, with other attributes like natural and uh, and even sustainability and uh, as as you well know uh, an area for innovation could be around greenhouse gas emissions particularly as it relates to cattle and uh, you know having incentives there to uh, to have innovation and to do things differently and to make a difference we as uh, packers and ultimately for the consumer uh, need to find ways to incent uh, uh, ranchers and producers uh, to be able to to do the things necessary to provide that end product as desired by the consumer. 
Anyone else uh, in terms of uh, your ability to innovate under the current regulatory trajectory? Let me uh, make a comment on that. Uh, regulation, if it's done right, is, is good. It's good for, for everybody. Um, but there are some regulations that have un unintended consequences, and those are the ones that uh, I think we have to be, be careful of and understand. We spend about $20 million a year on regulatory uh, issues. Not a big amount, but it's, but it's significant. We certainly don't want to see that, uh, that get out of hand. Very good. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And now I recognize the gentleman from California, Mr. DaCosta, who's also the chair of the Subcommittee on Livestock and Foreign Agriculture, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you very much uh, again, Mr. Chairman. And I think today's hearing certainly has provided a lot of insight as to, as you noted, the potential legislation that we're looking at and, and concerns that people have about impacts of prices and, and the supply chain. You know, I think we all recognize that with this COVID, this horrific COVID uh, and the closure of schools and restaurants, we took a very complicated, complex food supply chain and we really turned it upside down and in ways that we could not have anticipated two and a half years ago. Um, Mr. King, uh, in your testimony, um, when COVID hit in March 2020, the industry was um, almost closed overnight. I, I learned in the pork industry that 70% of bacon and pork bellies are consumed in restaurants, uh, and we had to do euthanasia in that, in that part of the protein industry. I've heard that food service accounts for roughly 50% of the beef sales. How did the shift from food service to retail impact your business? Uh, Congressman, uh, great question. Uh, you know, one of the one of the advantages to having scale is having the ability uh, to move across uh, all points of distribution or channels, and we were able to do that fairly quickly. Uh, uh, for example, move from lay fat uh, lay flat bacon that uh, is often used at uh, by food service operators to more of a stack pack or an L board or tux type product uh, in bacon. So we were able to, uh, to really quickly uh, adjust our uh, uh, production capabilities to be able to address this, uh, you know, this sudden uh, shift from uh, about, in our markets, about 50% uh, retail and food service to, uh, to almost 100% uh, retail almost overnight. Uh, so it was. It took a great deal of effort uh, by the team, uh, but uh, we were able to do that in fairly quick order. Yeah, I, I think for a number of the uh, CEOs that have testified here, you know, we we there's been a bit talked about the the workers who are essential workers, as we know, and whether it's any strain of agriculture, farm workers, or workers in processing facilities, they were essential. They are essential workers. Uh, with the impact of the 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 vaccine, what attempt has been made to really uh, try to protect their health and safety as it relates to, and, and of course, we're still trying to gear back up in terms of uh, the employment issue. Um, Mr. Uh, Klein, you care to comment? Yes, we continue to make every effort possible to keep our employees safe when they come into our facilities, starting with uh, screening and testing when they come in. Uh, we've maintained the workplace uh, partitions, uh, both in our production floors and in the break rooms. So as we look at it today, our employees are uh, safer than they've ever been inside of our facilities. Any of the other um, uh, witnesses care to comment? 
Yeah, on behalf of JBS, uh, we had so many interventions in place at our plants back then, but really starting about a year ago, we really started to pivot towards vaccination. And we've made a lot of effort inside of all of our facilities, including closing down facilities um, for vaccination days. Well, and plant. that's very important to bring and make that available, not only to the workers, but to their families as well. We've had some instances, we have a cargo plant in, uh, in, in Fresno, and of course we have other facilities in the area where they've made that available for their employees. And I think that's very important. Um, Mr. Giles in the previous panel testified that he's not really seen real enforcement uh, in the Stockyards and Packers Act since the 1980s. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, and, and cites that as part of the reason in the price disparity between the um, cow and calf operator and, and the prices that uh, um, American consumers are seeing in the grocery store. Um, I know there are a lot of factors that impact the prices of protein. Uh, when you go from the calf and cow operation or the dairy operation to the ultimate purchaser of that price that puts food on America's dinner table every night, and we know that that is a national security issue. Um, uh, I'm wondering if any of you would care to comment on those factors on the impacts of these uh, cost increases. Well, I would, I would uh, Congressman, I would, I would just simply say that uh, as I testified earlier, uh, virtually every input in the supply chain has gone up. And, uh, and typically when you see a minor increase uh, you know, companies uh, tend to absorb that, uh, but the rate of inflation uh, and cost have gone up so dramatically that uh, some of that uh, had to be ultimately passed on the consumer. And, uh, and we've done that as well. Uh, but, uh, you know, this, this is a, this beef business is a cyclical business. And, uh, you know, while we've seen the trough, I think it was like June of 20, in terms of the price of fed cattle. Um, if you look at it today, it's about $145 and, and based on futures will continue to move up as Mr. Klein uh, commented earlier. Uh, I agree with that assessment and uh, this uh, 10 year cattle cycle that was testified about earlier, uh, I would certainly expect uh, um, while everyone is making more money in the, uh, in the supply chain, uh, I would expect that to flip uh, some to the uh, to the uh, feeder. Well, and, my and time's feeder. expired, but if you could give the committee a breakdown of those uh, input costs so we could better understand it, I think that would be helpful. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. The gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Allen, is now recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I want to thank uh, all of our uh, CEOs for being here today and participating in this hearing. Obviously, what we're talking about is, uh, well, let me tell you what I'm hearing about in my district. <laughs> it's uh, the price of food, the price of gas, I mean, everything. And, of course, you know, I understand that certainly when you have a war on fossil fuels, you, you know, you, and you decrease your supply and demand still there, the price is going up, and that drives everything else, which has put us in a terrible predicament uh, all across uh, agriculture and, and everything, and really all the essentials uh, that we require in this country. And of course, uh, we're zeroing in here on, okay, what is actually driving it as far as uh, 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 
meat pricing and uh, and availability. And of course, we've got factors like the drought. We've got factors like, uh, you know, the big word up here is equity, where we're paying more to certain farmers uh, for for different products than we're paying other farmers. And uh, boy, that's dangerous. And so, uh, you know, what's that got to do with with, uh, pricing and that sort of thing? So I'm going to start here with Mr. Klein with you. the administration has tied inflation to a lack of competition. Um, and in his, in his State of the Union address, President Biden implied that concentration in the meatpacking industry is the reason for higher prices at retail. Now, I don't agree with that. Maybe some, but I don't agree with, that, with his statement there. Do you agree with the president? And please explain, and others on the panel, please feel free to weigh in as far as uh, what uh, what you think about the the president's statement there? What's actually driving prices? Thank you for the question. I believe that the prices of beef today at the retail or at the restaurant level are dictated by in the retail by the by the retailer itself. They set the price for beef. We don't set the price. We set the wholesale price, uh, and we react to supply and demand. The beef industry is the most purest form of capitalism in this country, I believe. Uh, Every day we're negotiating prices. As demand goes up, price goes up. If demand goes down, price goes down. And what's happened uh, in in our industry, if you look back 30 years, the concentration has remained the same. And the packer margins were very, very slim. So it's not concentration that's causing the high price of beef. It's demand for beef and then the inflationary factors of all of our impost Input costs have gone up, and we've got to pass that along. Okay. Any anyone else care to weigh in on that? Okay, Mr. Klein, your testimony pointed out the current beef processing industry consolidation levels are actually slightly lower today than they were back in 1998, and that overall levels of consolidation have been rel- relatively steady for decades. If that is the case, why do you think there is suddenly such a fixation on consolidation levels by this administration? If we go back to COVID time period, we weren't talking about inflation in general. But what we did see, because of the cutbacks in our industry, prices rose dramatically, and the consumers were paying more for beef. So it made the headlines from that point forward. Uh, As we go forward, and inflation became an even bigger factor, beef is part of that as well. So, uh, and again, if you look at history, for example, of course, you know, obviously when there's a drought, uh, you know, uh, immediately supply increases and but then it drops off. I mean, it's a fluctuating business. Um, but so we had the end of, you know, lots, lot, lot more meat packers back in. Uh, well, when I grew up, we had one in our town and we took the cow in and that's how we ate. But the bottom line is uh I mean, what what happened in in this industry? I mean, was it the government? I mean, obviously, regulations have the regulatory environment has increased. Correct. Yes. Inspections and that sort of thing. What can this government do to return competition in in your industry? Uh, First of all, the reason that there's not as much competition today is because the industry was forced to become much more efficient. The plants today are the most efficient plants in the world, uh, processing five or 6,000 head of cattle per day in each of these facilities. 
the cost is lower. Uh, we've got a single shift plant in Iowa. Our costs in that plant are $120 a head higher than they are in our big plants. So if you have many, many small plants with that kind of a penalty, cost penalty, that has to get passed along to the consumer or passed back to the, okay. the feeder. All right. Well, thank you, Mr. Klein. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Thank you. And now the gentlewoman from Iowa, Ms. Axney, is now recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Chairman, St uh, Chairman Scott, and thank you to our witnesses for being here on this uh, really important topic. Uh, you all hold tremendous power in the cattle industry, together accounting for over 80% of the market. And as your market share has risen over the last 50 years, going from 25% in 1977, that's back when my grandparents had a farm, and I remember the cattle on my grandparents' farm, you now have over 80% of the market share. My grandfather no longer has a farm, it's not in our family. The industry has also seen, seen a lot of disturbing trends in addition to farmers leaving. Since 1980, roughly 17,000 cattle producers have gone out of business every year, every year. Producers were receiving 60 cents of every dollar spent by consumers on beef and now that's under 40 cents. So now our producers are getting 30 some odd cents uh, for every dollar spent for their beef. And over the last 20 years, cattle traded on the cash market has decreased from more than half to only 20% of the overall market. I'm not seeing any good numbers here. And this consolidation has led to many of the major packing facilities closing in rural communities, costing us jobs and economic opportunity while exposing the entire industry to more risk caused by market disruption. Today, consumers are literally paying more for their beef, producers are receiving less for their cattle, and yet your four companies' net incomes have reached record highs. And it's not just because of the recent spike in cost for input, we will, I will recognize that. But let's go back decades of how we have seen our rural communities be impacted by this consolidation. So this is simply not sustainable for producers or consumers. And I've heard from far too many in Iowa who are worried about their ability just to stay in operation, to be able to pass it down to the next generation. These are the family farmers that I grew up with. And just like their parents did before them, I wanna make sure that they've got that opportunity. So something has to change. And my first question, uh, Mr. Shellpepper, can you respond to these trends? And are you worried about the fact that we're literally losing 17,000 cattle producers every single year? Well, thank you, Congresswoman. I believe that we operate in an extremely competitive environment, both on the buy side and then on the sell side, right? At JBS, we participate relative to cattle procurement in the markets, how producers will buy the cattle, how producers want us to buy them. Again, whether that's in a, on a cash basis, whether that's on a video auction, whether that's on, a, on some type of an AMA. Um, in your home state of Iowa, we are participating in numerous sale barns. We have uh, 14 sale barns, I believe, is in the state of Iowa. We have company employees participating in those sales. There's numerous other ones that we have some type of a, uh, a great needle type of a buyer in those sale parts. So best thing that we can do is to continue to be active in this cash market. We are, we are active in it every single day. And that's how what we're doing to try to support uh, these producers. Well, I appreciate uh, those efforts and I'd like to see those actually increase because we, the, the number is still correct. 
we have 17,000 cattle producers leaving the market every single year. So you got to be doing more when you're controlling 80% of the market. You've got an opportunity to start leveling the playing field here and making things right by us Iowa farmers uh, in Iowa. So I just want to move on now, though. I know we saw supply chain disruptions across the economy over the last couple of years. We mentioned that. And prices went up during that period. However, producers didn't get the benefits of those higher prices. Why are cattle producers struggling to get by when beef prices are high and your companies are making re record profits? Is that, is that for me, Congresswoman? Yes. Okay. Um, excuse me. So again, we, we talked before about, um, about this being a cyclical business. And we are now at the point in time where cattle markets are starting to turn. In fact, if you look at USDA, what we call the five area cattle market, um, what it averaged for the first quarter of this year is actually the third highest quarterly average price that we've seen in the last 13 years, other than those two record years, I believe it was a 14 and 15. So again, We've talked about cyclical business here. I believe we're on the back side of this cycle and things are starting to turn. Well, that's great. I guess, let, me, let me just rephrase that. What can you do differently to help level the playing field so that all cattle producers can have an opportunity for more income? Not just the ones you're currently working with. The, the best thing that we can do, again, is to increase our capacity, which we're doing, running our plants, and again, as I've said before, we're very active in the cash market. Additionally, we have numerous cattle buyers across the country, employees and type of order buyers active in the cash market. We have a cash bid every single day. Well, I'll look to see how much you're doing and I appreciate you being here for this important conversation. My time is up, thank you. I now recognize the gentleman from Ohio, Mr. Balderson for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, uh, first of all, to the, to the panel that's here today. Um, as you know, cattle markets are some of the most complex in the world, and there are a lot of factors that go into the price of beef, some of which you all mentioned in your testimonies. A major factor is the historic levels of inflation and rising costs that we've seen over the past year. Can you explain the impact that these inflationary pressures are having on your businesses and how it is impacting the price of cattle and beef. And everyone from the panel can jump in and answer that if you would like, please. Thank you for the question. I'll comment on that first. Uh, as I said earlier, the biggest impact we've seen in the last year has been transportation costs and labor costs. That's about $80 a head. Uh, which is a significant uh, jump. That means that cattle prices uh, either got to go down by that much or consumer prices have to go up, wholesale prices, in order for us to ma maintain the same profit margin. Uh, the biggest single factor we're dealing with right now is where we're at in the cattle cycle. There are simply more cattle available every week than there is demand and capacity to process those cattle. Would anybody like to jump in? All good? Okay, my next question is for Mr. King. Mr. King, you mentioned in your testimony that beef and cattle markets are some of the most transparent in the world. And you go on to mention that packers are required by law to share market information with USDA twice a day. 
Can anyone or can you and anyone on this panel elaborate on what information you are required to share and what USDA does with this information? Uh, thank you, Congressman. Uh, uh, very specifically, we report the price that we pay for cattle and what we sell beef for uh, twice a day. Uh, you can go to USDA website and AMS, uh, and you can find that uh, uh, for a particular day, week, month, or any period of time in which you would select. Okay. Um, follow up with that. Um, to your knowledge, are you aware of any other industries that are subject to this kind of reporting uh, and scrutiny? Uh, Congressman, not to my knowledge. Uh, very well could be, but not to my knowledge. All right, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Uh, my last question is for Mr. Klein. Mr. Klein, many economists would argue that the volatility in the cattle and beef sector can be explained by supply and demand dynamics. My first question would be, do you agree with that? Yes, I agree with that. Please explain your answer. As I said earlier, uh, this is uh, the purest capitalist, capitalism in our industry, uh, of any industry. Uh, we negotiate prices hour by hour with the products we sell and with the cattle we buy. So whenever we have uh, disruptions in the system, like uh, a fire, like COVID, it's gonna result in a, in a pretty dramatic uh, adjustment and volatility in uh, the price of uh, the products that we buy and sell. And that has been the single biggest factor. But, but this is a, a, a very uh, uh, dynamic industry operating in a free market system and, and volatility is part of the business, always has been. Mr. Klein, thank you very much for your answer. Mr. Chairman, I yield back my remaining time. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. And now the gentleman from Iowa, Mr. Fenstra, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Scott. And I want to thank the Packers uh, for participating today. And I always want to remind everyone that putting protein on the table starts with the family producer. And it's the process, you know, where it all starts is, is on, the, on the family farm. So I've got a question for each one of you, hopefully. I'll start with Mr. King. Mr. King, I've been told that the four largest meat packers agreed to provide information to the Cattlemen's Organization uh, for a producer-led initiative to achieve 75% of negotiated trade needed for robust, robust price discovery in each reporting region. The feeders made the effort to meet this voluntary threshold, but the initiative failed due to the lack of packer participation. Um, could you explain why this failed? Uh, Congressman, um, I'm not familiar with that. Uh, I would be happy to, uh, to get the necessary information and get it uh, to you and to this committee. Okay, thank you. If some packers are allowed to not participate in the cash markets, would they not be able to manipulate the regional supply of cattle by simply shifting their captive supply from one region to the next? Uh, and the reason I bring this up is there's a study done by my university, Iowa State University, that notes this practice. Uh, are you aware of this practice, uh, uh, Mr. King? Uh, Congressman, I am not aware of it. Um, I'm certainly, uh, uh, certainly willing to, to go explore it and understand uh, and try to understand what, uh, what you're speaking of. 
Okay. Uh, Mr. McClennan, in my eyes, uh, here is this fundamental problem. You know, you have the big four Packers that control a large Packers capacity up to maybe 80, 85%. Uh, you're able to determine how many animals are harvested and how much meat is offered. The market share lets you control the price through contracts, manage the amount of being slaughtered through line speeds and control the supply of livestock. So my question is, how do we get to transparency when some of these things are happening? And this is, you know, I'd like you to, to look, you know, what's your thoughts on this? Well, Representative Feenstra, I think uh, number one is, uh, as, as I've stated, Cargill purchases between 30 and 35 percent of our cattle in the cash markets. Number two is our job is to provide a market for the ranchers who are bringing their cattle to market. So to the extent that we have constrained capacity because of labor issues or because of, um, you know, whether we close down because of COVID, um, then there, there would be a backlog in the supply chain. But our job is to be there every day for the ranchers, for a place for them to bring their cattle. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I fully understand what you're saying. Um, I, I will, con- you know, contest that that there is uh, a control in the markets through line speeds and, and the amount being slaughtered that can mani- manipulate the markets. Mr. Uh, Shellen, uh Pepper, uh, Iowa, Minnesota region have the highest quality of grade cattle in the U.S. I'm not sure if you knew that, but since we're told that AMAs drive, drive quality, can you explain uh, how cattle producers in Iowa, Minnesota are able to raise some of the best cattle in the nation without, without uh, AMAs? Uh, thank you, Congressman. Um, and I would agree. We do, there's some very good quality cattle in Iowa, and we buy them. Uh, we take them to several of our different plants. Um, relative to how they uh, how they do that, um, frankly, I'm I'm not a cattle feeder, uh, Congressman. I would uh, I would defer to someone in the uh, in, in Iowa that could be probably better prepared to answer that question. Sure. That I can. Sure. But, so, so, so here's the question that there's a lot of alternative marketing agreements that reward quantity over quality. In essence, some studies indicate that around 25 percent have nothing to do with the quality and that these are traded at a premium only because they have made a deal to guarantee supply for the packer. Uh, this data is obviously hard to come by, but you think about, you know, turn in cattle. I'm not sure if you know what that is, but how how does this relate to price discovery, uh, Mr. Scalpepper? If, if you can talk about that a little bit. Sure. Uh, Congressman, we're involved in price discovery. We are in the cash market every day. Um, we are active participants, especially in your home state of Iowa. We're active participants in the cash market. So that's the that's the best way that, uh, um, the way they, that I can answer that relative to AMAs. Um, but we are very, very active in the cash market. So... Doesn't the link between AMAs and the cash market give the packers an incentive to lower the cash market price as doing so would lower the base price for all cattle committed to that packer under that AMA? Would that be a fair statement? Well, I think it's, it's important to note that even an AMA is a negotiation. What, the, what that base is, what any, any premiums or discounts, it's all a negotiation. Okay. I'm out of time. I thank you and I yield back. Thank you. And now the gentleman from Alabama, Mr. Moore, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I want to thank all the panelists uh, participating today. Uh, uh, Mr. Klein, this is a question for you. Um, You mentioned regulatory compliance as an input cost. Can you briefly walk us through the various regulatory regimes that your business is subject to? 
Are there current regulatory and legislative proposals that you worry will significantly in increase your regulatory burden? And others on the panel, y'all feel free to participate. The, the, the single biggest areas where uh, we're regulated are inspection, uh, grading, and environmental. And for the most part, those regulations are good regulations that keeps our products uh, safe going to the consumers. Uh, as we look at what's coming down the road, some of the proposals, uh, legislation and, and regulation, uh, although the intent is good, the outcome may not be uh, desirable, particularly for the, uh, the producer segment. Any others like to answer uh, or any input on what regulatory concerns you have going forward, something we might get to head off and make it a little bit less burdensome for the industry? Uh, Congressman, um, there's just a couple of things. I mean, there are a number of things that we do support. Uh, for example, reasonable and thoughtful policy uh, uh, where cost and impact are considered. Uh, we support that. We support uh, incentives uh, around innovation. Uh, we support policy that would help uh, team members uh, around things like education and childcare, for example. Uh, we support transparency, uh, for example, the uh, contract library that, uh, that we've seen. Uh, you know, ranchers would need to understand uh, proper confidentiality and so forth. Uh, but the things that, uh, that we're not for is uh, when we uh, add regulation on top of regulation and it's duplicative. And uh, uh, for example, uh, uh, the uh, Fisher-Grassley bill as it relates to a special investigator, uh, we believe that USDA and, and Department of Justice already have this power to do that. And they're engaged in this. And, uh, and I think one of the panelists from the earlier session today talked about that, that that uh, the framework is already there. So if we, if there are bad actors in here, uh, you know, then uh, we need to enforce uh, the regulations that we already have. Thank you, Mr. King. And by the way, I'm an ag science guy and poultry background. I understand you started on the floor yourself back in the day. Yes, sir, Congressman, I did. Very good. Anybody else? I know uh, Ronald Reagan always said the government's idea on the economy is when it's moving, we tax it. If it keeps moving, you regulate it. If it fails, you subsidize it. And so often I worry about taxes and regulations. Uh, any other input on that? If not, I can yield back, Mr. Chairman. Okay, I'll yield back. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Yes. Uh, Recognize the gentlewoman from Virginia, Ms. Spanberger. She is also the chair of the subcommittee on conservation and forestry. You're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to the ranking member as well. I want to thank the witnesses for being here to lend your perspective. Uh, a few months ago, I was proud to host USDA leaders in Orange County, Virginia, to meet with the Virginia Cattlemen's Association and the Virginia Cattle and Virginia cattle producers, folks I represent who are a vital and integral part of our community. Uh, and I know that many cattle producers in our district have been in the cattle industry for generations, and they are proud to share the lessons and the expertise that their families have developed over decades. Uh, they have shared how the industry has changed and, frankly, how anti-competitive practices by other entities in the supply chain, specifically larger packers, have stacked the hand against cattle producers and consumers, particularly smaller family farms like those that I represent in Virginia. Producers feel that they uh, that as they work sunset 
to sunup to sundown. Consumers uh, feel this at the grocery store, and it is glaringly obvious in the data. So I want to just talk about the data. We know that the cattle producer share of retail value for beef has decreased from 51.5% in 2015 to 36.8% in 2021. Right, that's just a couple years difference. And at the same time, JBS UFB division saw record net revenue up 101% on the previous year. Meat prices are up 13% for consumers over last year with families struggling to afford a nutritious diet. And at the same time, Tyson saw double digit increases in profits and sales in the last quarter. Since 1980, 40% of cattle producers have gone out of business, and at the same time, Cargill has reported its biggest profit in its 156-year history, and National Beef's parent company profits more than doubled in the third quarter of 2021. And I want to mention that Mr. Koi Young, who testified in the first portion of today's hearing, spoke about the family farmers that are going out of business 40 0.27 family cattle farms per day call it quits. And farmers contemplate taking their lives because the generations of work that went into creating their family farms are slipping out of their fingers. And so I want to talk about what it means. I want to talk about what it means for these family farmers. Uh, the, the Packers and Stockyard Acts, it exists to prevent undue preferences and advantages for any particular person. We also know that there are financing arrangements and alternative marketing, marketing arrangements, AMAs, uh, that so many of my colleagues have asked about that Packers have with feedlots that allow uh, for substantial control over the supply of live cattle. So, Mr. McLennan, you mentioned in your opening testimony that Cargill does offer uh, does finance producer inputs, um, and I would open the question to anyone else who might want to uh, address it. But Mr. McLennan, beginning with you, does your company help finance any producer inputs such as feed, pen space, or other inputs as part of AMAs or otherwise? As part, uh, Congresswoman, as part of the AMAs, uh, directly no. And I would add that uh, the AMAs and, the, and our cash market participation, which is very strong, over 30 uh, percent, are and it's been referenced several times that these are what the producers want to achieve. But in terms of farmer financing or farmer education relative to regenerative agriculture, we've got something called Beef Up Sustainability to educate farmers and to provide f financing alternatives. But so, yes, is my answer to your question that we, we can't be successful without them. And, and so these financing agreements, um, is it your assessment that they do follow the spirit uh, and the intent of the Packard, uh, Packers and Stockyards Acts, specifically uh, that a law that exists to prevent undue preference and advantage? I'm, I'm, we abide by the law. So if it's if it's embedded in the Packers and Stockyard Act, then we will follow that law, whether they're embedded in the specific AMAs. I don't have access to that information right now, but we certainly can follow well, up. And certainly when it comes to in, 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 acknowledging, understanding, and abiding the law, I think it's certainly past time for the federal government to look carefully at the anti-competitive behaviors that really are uh, driving the stunning statistics that I mentioned. Uh, that's why I introduced the Meat and Poultry Special Investigators Act uh, that was referenced earlier alongside Congresswoman Miller Meeks uh, with our Senate companion, uh, sponsored by Senators Testers and rounds. This legislation would create an office at USDA titled the Office of Special Investigator for Comp Competition Matters, a 
then uh, to just counter the point that one of our witnesses made earlier, um, the purpose here is to ensure that the folks who know this industry, USDA, that they are the ones leading the investigations into what's happening. Uh, I appreciate the comments related to it's taken care of. It's within Department of Justice, but indeed that is just not good enough to look out for the needs of the farmers and producers back home in Virginia. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. The gentleman from Kansas, Mr. Mann, is recognized for five minutes. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and, and similar comments and remarks as we get started here and questions to what I asked our previous panel. Um, first off, on behalf of the farmers, ranchers, and agriculture producers in the 1st District of Kansas, thank you for participating in today's full committee hearing regarding beef markets. This issue is especially near and dear to me since both sides of my family have farmed and fed cattle in western Kansas for more than 120 years. I cut my teeth growing up on a preconditioning feed yard, a couple thousand head in Gove County, um, you know, spent thousands of hours um, riding pins and doctoring sick calves. The big first ranks number one in the country for the value of sales of cattle and calves at more than $9 billion every year. There are more than 4.4 million cattle and calves raised in my district and significant packing capacity with more than 20% of the nation's beef slaughter capacity. We see the entire supply chain in the big first, from cow-calf producers to cattle feeders to packers. More broadly, the beef sector supports grain producers, manufacturers, veterinarians, and many other small businesses that operate rural towns, that populate rural towns across Kansas and the country. In a competitive cattle market, it is vital for producers to be able to uh, differentiate their product to eventually suit the taste of the consumer. As seen by the growing demand for beef, both here in the U.S. and around the world, selective breeding and nutrition that have increased quality bring opportunities for producers to negotiate a premium price for their cattle. These contracts allow feeders to benefit from making a value-added investment and provide some certainty in a volatile market. Across the country, cattle producers continue to face challenging market dynamics, including historically wide gaps between wholesale beef prices and fed cattle prices, packing capacity and regulation, and more. I've talked to hundreds of cattle producers in Kansas ranging from small cow-calf operations to some of the country's largest feed yards. Overwhelmingly, I've heard that we need to increase price discovery in the cash market, make sure that producers benefit when they provide a superior product, refuse to let the government interfere in the free market, and acknowledge regional differences. There's currently discussion in Washington around the federal government mandating a certain percentage of cash or spot transactions between feeder and the packer, limiting the number of allowable alternative marketing agreements. AMAs are popular across the big first and are used by many because they cut costs, increase efficiencies, and reward producers for a higher quality of product. Uh, a, a few questions here uh, and for, for you, Mr. Klein. Do you feel that legislation proposed to limit the use of AMAs would negatively affect the beef market and, and what do you anticipate would be the impact to the beef quality in this country? The biggest impact would be to the quality. The quality would definitely go down if we were paying the same price for, for uh, uh, cattle and not able to offer uh, a premium for better cattle. So certainly that would, uh, that would impact that. The other impact uh, is cash trade versus uh, AMAs. Most of the AMAs that we have, and others are, are the same that we, that we know about, uh, the, the producer wants that ability to offer uh, product, uh, cattle to us, to get a premium for those cattle, and to have a guaranteed uh, shackle space for the cattle. Uh, especially in the south where there's, they operate like hotels, cattle move in, cattle move out every week, they have to have a home for those cattle. 
Uh, we design our AMAs so that uh, they're the type of cattle that we need and that we can grow our business with. In the current environment, the current part of the cattle cycle, uh, more cash trade would not be to the producer's benefit, simply because there'd be too many cash trade. Uh, there's more cattle available today than we have uh, ability to process. So you think more cash trade would actually reduce the price that most producers are receiving right, for their cattle believe, today? Yes. Could you, uh, Mr. Klein, then kind of with that briefly, just talk us through the recent fed cattle and beef price trends and any predictions moving forward? I know you address it in your yeah. testimony. If you'd be willing to kind of give us a picture or snapshot of April 2022, kind of where we're at in the cycle and what you anticipate occurring. Yeah, well, cattle prices today are up 45 percent from where they were uh, in the in the uh, depth of, of COVID. Uh, beef prices are down about 60 percent from that same time period. So. Uh, we had that anomaly during COVID that drove this, but the biggest factor we have today is oversupply of cattle relative to industry capacity. Um, but that's changing, and we're already seeing it change. Uh, as we look forward from here, we're going to see cattle prices go up, and we're going to see the beef profit for packers go down. The profit's going to shift back to the cattle production segments. And as you see the market, when do you anticipate that begins to occur? The peak is occurring as we speak. It would have already occurred. The peak would have occurred in 2020 had it not been for the backlog of cattle that uh, were not processed during uh, COVID. Great. I assume my time has expired. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. With that, I yield back. The general lady from Florida, Ms. Comack, is recognized for five minutes. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Thompson. I have been waiting for 16 months for a real hearing on production agriculture. So please forgive the fact that I have a lot to say. Now, we spoke to this on the previous panel, and I would just like to reiterate, I echo the views of my district's livestock producers, as well as the views of those on this committee that believe in equal opportunity, not equal outcome. This administration has dismissed the most basic principles of economics and instead has chosen to demonize our nation's packers, which in my opinion is a low, lazy, and simple narrative. I am personally appalled that in the midst of a myriad of crises, be it the skyrocketing cost of inputs, something that has continually been ignored by this administration and this committee for that matter, or the sting of historic inflation also conveniently ignored or blamed on the previous administration, or the geopolitical uncertainty, and let us not forget the labor crisis that we are experiencing, just take your pick. Instead, the majority here at one of the most important committees in the U.S. House of Representatives, and by extension, this administration has chosen political theater over a meaningful discussion and solutions to major issues pressing our livestock industry. I heard many years ago that anger without action is nothing more than political theater. Well, here we are with a long list of complaints from a majority and administration about an industry that they themselves helped decimate. Overregulation, paying people to stay home and not work, withholding, permitting, forced unionization, I could go on and on. The irony is not lost on me nor my constituents and producers back home that the majority here today is essentially scolding themselves. I am starting to suspect, quite honestly, that the reason that the majority deliberately chose not to have an economist testify before us here today, because God forbid, we actually contemplate the realities of supply and demand and other basic economic forces that could lead us astray from this polit political theater production that we've got going here. And you know, I'm deeply concerned by the majority's complete disregard of the data and upholding uh, sensationalized claims to push a political narrative. 
Just earlier in this hearing, we saw meat market data from 2015 to 2020, but 2010 to 2015 was missing. I wonder why. Hmm. Maybe it was because this data showed that really the facts don't fit the political narrative and instead illustrated the cyclical realities of the livestock industry. As someone who grew up in the cattle industry on a small cow-calf operation and also happens to have a minor in economics, I can tell you that there is a litany of issues that producers face, many of them out of their control and due to an overreaching government. Quite frankly, sometimes speaking uh, with my midsize processors and cow-calf producers, I think that USDA is doing more to try to justify their existence rather than help the industry. Take, for example, this new grant money that the USDA is so proud of that is supposed to help build small and mid-sized processing plants. Any plant handling between 525 head a week, the cost of construction alone upwards of $35 million, and that's in a good economy. That, doesn't fa- that does not figure in the operational costs and the compliance costs, also conveniently omitted from the conversation here today. In short, for the layperson, the government here is promising ponies and they're delivering us stick horses. That's what is happening here. For all the attempts today to make the livestock industry the scapegoat for all of Biden's failed policies, let the record reflect that a few on this committee are at the table with real solutions. Recognizing that the livestock industry is much like any other commodity market and by very nature cyclical, sometimes the price in store does not reflect the the price on the hoof and vice versa. Anyone in this industry, like myself, knows that. But for those in the back, I'm going to kick it to Mr. Klein. Mr. Klein, regarding our processors, large and small, we've heard from a host of economists in front of other committees that the volatility in the cattle and beef sector are explainable by supply and demand dynamics along an overly aggressive, uh, along with an overly aggressive regulatory environment. Do you agree with that? Yes, I agree. And Mr. King, you have mentioned the constrained labor pool at the height of the pandemic. To what degree have those shortages been resolved? Uh, Congresswoman, uh, we are largely uh, staffed at this point. Uh, we, We still deal with a great deal of absenteeism. But during the pandemic, Mr. King, can you explain the labor pool situation at the height of the pandemic? Uh, absolutely. Uh, we were we were constrained. Uh, for example, uh, uh, we would be operating if the plant was operating at all. We'd be operating 30, 40 percent in the earliest of days. Uh, and, uh, you know, just a year ago, we were no better than 75 or 80 percent of capacity. I think my point here has been made with that. Mr. Chairman, I yield back. The gentleman from North Carolina, Mr. Roser, is recognized for five minutes. Well, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I've got a a gazillion thoughts on my mind, so let me try to narrow this down a little bit. Uh, First, I want to um, uh, mention I've got a small uh, uh, processor in my district. Uh, Their business took off during the uh, pandemic. Um, uh, They use Facebook, social media. Uh, platforms, uh, you know, people like the fact that they can uh, get their uh, protein uh, locally. Uh, their biggest problem uh, in expansion is dealing with the rules and, and regulations. And it uh, strikes me that, uh, and this is across all industries, the more rules and regulation you have, the greater the cost. The greater co- the cost, the greater the drive for efficiency, partly. 
and therefore the uh, greater the natural occurrence of concentration. So if you want to add all these new rules and regulations, new GYPSA rules, for example, which I wanted to uh, focus on one in a minute, uh, you're just adding that much more cost, that much more uncertainty, uh, which um, really uh, a lot of what's proposed actually goes against what's trying to be achieved. In June of 2021, uh, USDA issued its uh, spring regulatory agenda that included three proposed rules surrounding uh, the PSA. The proposed rule clarification of scope of the Packards, Packers and Stockyards Act looks to address the harm to competition standard under PSA. And although we have not seen the text of the proposed rule, it's generally accepted it's probably going to be pretty similar, if not exact, uh, to the 2016 rule posted a month prior to the end of the Obama administration. Uh, can you all speak to any of the panelists or all? Uh, if finalized in similar fashion, uh, the economic impact of that proposed GYPSA rule pertaining to the harm to competition standard? Anyone want to comment on that? Well, hearing none, Mr. Chairman, I have a letter I want to make sure is submitted uh, for the record, uh, and this is switching topics uh, slightly. Uh, this is a letter addressed to Senator Schumer, uh, signed by a number of organizations that I would say are pretty anti-agriculture, including one that uh, was a witness on the previous panel, and I hate I didn't get the opportunity to bring this up then, but I had to leave uh, to uh, uh, meet some other commitments. Uh, the Northern Plains uh, Resource uh, Council, uh, and this is a uh, an organization that is listed with other groups that have specifically said, in referring to concentrated animal feeding operations, uh, that they are a tool, quote, a tool of environmental racism and injustice. You know, I think we're at a point where we need to focus on production agriculture, what's good for the whole, what's good for the country. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the longer you pick at a scab, it never heals. Mm -hmm. We need to pull together and look forward and work together. You know, packers, packers need uh, producers. Producers need packers. Mm -hmm. Well, we, we, need each, we, we need each other. And... Uh, I want to uh, highlight and, and, and submit this uh, letter for the record just so everybody knows who's aligned with who. Without objection. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, in my final uh, minute here, I'd like to uh, give the uh, uh, heads of these companies the opportunity to share any comments that they might have as it relates to regulation and, and the evolution of things uh, in this industry because there are, there are cycles. And uh, we don't need to be uh, uh, antagonizing each other. We need to be working together, coming, coming together with uh, new solutions uh, for all of agriculture. I'll turn it over to the panel. I've got 30 seconds left. Yeah, this, uh, thank you for the question. Uh, what I'd like to say is that uh, our industry has been vilified for many years. As long as I've been in this business, uh, the Packers always been the bad guy. Yet, if you look at the history our profit margins have been razor thin. 
And up until the last few years, that was the case. You put more cost on the, on the system through regulation at any level, it just means our costs go up, cost of the consumer goes up, or the price we pay for cattle goes down. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. The gentleman from South Dakota, Mr. Johnson, is recognized for five minutes. You know, thanks, Mr. Chairman. And, and you know, too often it seems like uh, congressional attention is drawn to the brightest light, I suppose, like moths to the flame. And so it wasn't uh, that surprising that in April 2020, when uh, cattle prices bottomed out and when uh, people couldn't get uh, the steak they wanted at their meat counter, then, you know, lo and behold, all of a sudden, everybody, including the city folk, uh, had their attention on this space. They began to understand the weaknesses in the supply chain. I think they began to appreciate the deficiencies uh, in the cattle market. At that time, members across uh, this body understood that this stuff matters. And in that environment, we were able to get real progress done on my cattle contract library and on the Spanberger-Johnson uh, Butcher Block Act. But this stuff matters, Mr. Chairman, all the time. As you so often say, we cannot do without food. And that means we can't let attention just drift away because we've had a bit of a rally on the fed cattle prices. We can't afford to let our attention drift away just because we are between black swan events. Uh, in our earlier panel today, we talked a lot about uh, market tra marketplace concentration. Uh, we talked about efficiency, efficiency, efficiency. And we talked about a, a choke point at a particular part of the supply chain. Uh, that is the meat processing part of the supply chain, the part that our witnesses today in this panel can speak to. And as I think about that, we, we talk a lot about the big four, and that's appropriate. But I think we also want to talk about the big 30 or the big 12. What do I mean by that? Well, between 85 and 90% of the beef processing in this country is done, is done at just 30 plants, just 30 physical locations. And in fact, 12 plants do more than half of all the beef processing. To me, that seems like a lot of vulnerability. That seems like a lot of eggs in a very small number of baskets. Because when black, uh, black swan events happen, whether they're cybersecurity or they are the Holcomb fire or they are COVID, we know that when those black swan events attack that choke point, uh, that hurts producers, that hurts uh, consumers. We know another black swan event is coming, whatever it is. I don't know what it is and I don't know when it's going to be, but we know it's coming. And so here's what I'm going to tell you what I think, gentlemen, and you can uh, tell me what you think. I think that this drive for efficiency has left our country with too little slack, with too little cushion. I think this tightness leaves us exposed to unforeseen disruptions, and that creates a lot of risk, a lot of vulnerability to the American cattle producer. So my questions, and uh, we can start with Mr. Shellpepper from JBS. You know, number one, am I wrong about that vulnerability, about that risk? And number two, if unfortunately I'm right, what do we do about it? Thank you, Congressman. Uh, I'll speak to JBS. So we operate nine plants across the United States. We operate 
some very large plants. We operate some very large plants. We operate plants in, in very different parts of the country with a network of buyers to buy those cattle and a distribution network that frankly is very robust. So from my perspective, and I can only speak for the JBS business, I think our model offers a degree of resiliency already. And I don't know, and I'm not, listen, I'm not insinuating that all of the cost of additional cushion within the system should be borne by any particular set of shareholders. But it, it seems to me that when we say that, you know, one company or the marketplace has enough cushion that you think you're diverse enough, I mean, we're, we just don't see that, right, sir? I mean, when we have one issue attack one plant, don't we see massive price swings to both the producers and the consumers? What am I getting wrong here? Well, from a market standpoint, I mean, what's happened over the last couple of years is well documented. And again, I go back to as we went through COVID, we had a number of goals in our company, and one of them was recognizing and taking on the responsibility of our role in the food supply. And that doesn't end with COVID, that, that we carry that forward with us every single day. So whether that's things that we should be doing inside of our facilities, whether that's other risk mitigation strategies that we should have, we continually work on those, even today. Well, thank you, sir. Mr. Chairman, I would just close by noting this. I mean, I, I don't think everything's okay. I do think we have a vulnerability in the American food supply system that uh, I know we can work in a bipartisan way to address, but the big 12, the big 30, the big four, this is a problem for the availability and security of American food. Thank you. Point well spoken, Mr. Johnson. And now the gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Austin Scott, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Scott. And uh, Mr. McLean, and I know uh, my colleague Rick Crawford spoke with you a little bit about this, but I've got a couple of questions I'd like to follow up with. Do you pay a different price in cattle markets uh, based on the race of the farmer? No. Mr. McLean? Did you hear? I'm sorry. Can you hear me, Representative Scott? Yes, sir. Do you pay a different yeah. price in the cattle markets based on the race of the farmer? I'm sorry. I answered, but you must not have my microphone. Anyway, no. Okay. Do you pay a different price in um, cotton markets based on the race of the farmer? Yes. Do you pay a different price in uh, corn markets based on the race of the farmer? No. Wheat markets? No. Any, any market other than cotton, do you pay a different price based on the race of the farmer for the commodity? As of today, no, but I would expect that we'll expand our black equity, black farmer equity initiative to other commodities. Okay. Uh, well, I don't mind telling you, I hope you get sued over that. I think that's illegal and unconstitutional. But since you've referred to it as black farmer equity, I want to ask you this. Um, the definition under USDA of socially disadvantaged farmers includes black or, or African-American farmers, as well as American Indian or Alaska Native, Hispanic or Latino, Asian and Pacific Islanders, and women. Now, one of the definitions excludes women, but how did you determine to discriminate against the other uh, classes who are defined as socially disadvantaged farmers by the USDA? As I mentioned, this is a new program for us, uh, and we have several DEI programs and initiatives. We're also no, members sir, of- Sir, how did you determine 
to discriminate against Hispanic farmers and pay African-American farmers more than you pay Hispanic farmers or discrim your discrimination against Asian farmers and pay them uh, less than you pay African-American farmers for the same product. How did, you determine, which, how did you determine which races to discriminate against? We've chosen to begin our program with black farmers who are significantly underrepresented. And I believe that we will expand our program to include other ethnic groups. Do you intend to include women in that? Uh, yes. So, uh, women of all races? Yes. So you will include white women in it then? Yes. What about white men? I, I, it, I don't think white men are underrepresented in the farming industry today. So you're gonna pay, uh, by definition, you're engaging in racism and discrimination. You're, you're gonna pay white men less than you're gonna pay everybody else. I believe we're your engaging testimony. in, I, I believe we're engaging in support of a historically underrepresented component of our farm community, less than 1%, roughly half a percent of the farming community in the United States are black Americans. Ms. And so Ms. for us, I'm sorry. Mr. McLennan, if you were doing something for beginning young and small, where it did not discriminate against race, you would see me going thumbs up and absolutely, and we need to help the beginning young and small farmers. But, but to differentiate based on the color of the farmer's skin, so you're gonna give a multimillionaire who's, who's not white more than you'll pay a 21-year-old who's just getting started farmer that is white. I, I mean, if you wanna go for beginning young and small and how we help beginning young and small farmers, I'm all for you. But discriminating and paying somebody more because of the color of their skin or, or paying somebody less because of the color of their skin, that's inherently un-American. And so I, uh, I'm disappointed in you. I'm, I'm disappointed in your company. I'm disappointed in Target specifically because I believe that they are the ones that have driven this initiative. And so uh, let me ask you this. M Mr. Klein, do you differentiate in price? that you pay based on the color of the farmer? No, we do not. Do, does anybody else that's testifying differentiate in price based on the color of the farmer? No, we do not. Well, I, no, I, pre we I appreciate you uh, not discriminating for or against people based on the color of their skin with regard to the products uh, that, that you purchase from them. With that, Mr. Chairman, I... Um, I yield the remainder of my time. The general lady from Louisiana, Ms. Letlow, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Scott, and thank you to all the witnesses before us on both panels for participating on this important discussion here today. Like many of my colleagues have stressed before me, greater transparency and competitiveness in cattle markets are the concerns I hear most from our farmers back in my district. Farmers are the backbone of rural America and the economic driver of our local communities. Without them and the hope of future generations to follow them, our nation will no longer be the global leader in the food supply chain. Mr. Shellpepper, your testimony mentions that the packing facility does not set the price of retail beef paid by consumers. Can you or anyone else on the panel walk us through how the product from your facility makes its way to customers at the restaurant and retail level, the changes that occur to that product, and the various pricing determinations made along the way? 
Thank you, Congresswoman. So the market that we participate in as a packer is what we call the wholesale market. And that's that's the, the price discovery, if you will. It's the market that we report on mandatory price reporting um, to the USDA. That's the price that we work out with our customers, obviously. When product leaves our plants, um, this is where our industry becomes very, very complex. Um, product can go to a lot of different places, sometimes directly to a, a retail or food service uh, distribution center. Sometimes it could go to another processing place or it could go to a cold storage. Um, each one of those steps that would be incremental will add a certain amount of cost, perhaps adds a certain amount of value. Um, but again, very complex industry. No, there's not a one size fits all here. Okay, Mr. King, your testimony mentions that geopolitical issues are compounding other challenges the industry is facing. Obviously, the war in Ukraine is top of mind for all of us. So I'm curious, how is that conflict affecting your operations? And are there other geopolitical issues this committee should be mindful of? And anyone on the panel is welcome to answer. Uh, thank you, Congresswoman. Uh, you know, the war in Ukraine is obviously a, a, a big piece of that. Uh, from a grain standpoint, from a cooking oil standpoint, uh, and the price associated with that, it's a large market uh, in terms of producing wheat. Uh, and there will be the plantings uh, in both Ukraine and Russia uh, have been slowed or uh, maybe uh, maybe not happen at all uh, at this year. So that, that would be the largest. Uh, but secondly, uh, what we see with respect to the COVID lockdown in uh, in China, and uh, you know the inability to unload uh, ships and uh, and uh, have trucks and transportation to move inland in China, though that would be another example of that. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back the remainder of my time. The. The gentleman from Texas, Mr. Cloud, is now recognized for five minutes. Mr. Cloud. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I have a question really to all the CEOs who are here, and so you can all pick who uh, you would wonder. But, but basically, when I talk to people back home, they're certainly concerned uh, about the pricing and how it's developed over, over some time. Um, it seems to be like there's a, an issue with competition uh, when it comes to what, what's your capacity, I guess, right now when it comes to being able to produce more or less. Thank you for the question. I'll, I'll start that discussion. Uh, we are operating today at 100% of capacity. Uh, all three of our facilities are operating uh, as much as we can possibly uh, go through. Um, and that is going to continue until the cattle supply drops where there are not enough cattle available to, to operate at 100% capacity. It's my understanding that's, that's pretty systemic of where the industry's at right now is would you all agree uh mr uh, uh congressman um uh, we we are not at 100 percent capacity we're better than we've been uh, we're back to pre-pandemic levels but uh i would tell you that we're in the 90 percent range at tyson okay when we're talking about capacity and what would be the limits that are keeping you from expanding more and creating more capacity. It, it, are, are we talking cost of equipment? 
supply chain issues? Is it people? Uh, when you're making that evaluation, oh, what are you looking at? I think it, for us, it is a couple of things. One is uh, people, uh, and then the uh, skills, uh, skill level associated with those people. Uh, we had a number of people leave the, the workforce, and so the training, skilling, and upskilling of those team members is, is a uh, component. Uh, uh, but also just getting up line speeds back uh, and uh, get this engine uh, running at uh, full speed uh, is, uh, is a challenge with the inexperience level we have within our workforce. Uh, you know, we, we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and uh, we're encouraged by that, but uh, uh, we still have some work to do to get all the way bright. Would anyone else like to speak to that? Congressman, uh, we are uh, we are back to to near capacity levels uh, at JBS, and again, as I mentioned earlier, we're expanding our capacity as well. Okay, uh, it would it would seem to me like one of the biggest issues that what I hear when I'm talking to people in the ag community is they're concerned that there might be a lack of competition uh, that, that that is leading to increased prices, and and so. I guess my question is, is, is in on that, it seems like if there's a bottleneck in the supply chain issue right now, it is at the Packers uh, and in a sense. And, and uh, my questions are, is what, what could be done to create a more competitive environment? Uh, what can we do to increase capacity? Uh, what can we do to where, um, you know, feedlots and such have more of a bargaining for price uh, and, and those kind of things to of course, anytime we're looking at these sort of issues, uh, the preference should be um, to find ways to let the market work and to incentivize the market to work as opposed to coming in with a price fixing scheme or those kind of things. And so uh, my question is really what would be your suggestions along those lines? You know, Congressman, I would I would suggest that, uh, you know, if you think about the food supply and, and protein in particular, you know, I would tell you it's 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 the most affordable, most resilient, uh, uh, and accessible in the world. And uh, so, uh, I would tell you it's it's good. Uh, in our particular case, just getting uh, all the way back to full speed will be will be helpful. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, because of some of the things, whether it be with AMAs or just a better grading uh, piece of meat, uh, U.S. grain-fed beef is the most desired in the world. And so the demand for that is incredibly strong. Uh, I see that doing nothing but getting stronger. Uh, so competition is great. Being able and finding ways to, to service the existing customers and those who, who will be new into the marketplace is, is gonna be a challenge for us at Tyson. And uh, it's one that we're, we're embracing. Uh, but uh, uh, good news is the demand for beef uh, uh, high quality uh, U.S. grain-fed beef has has never been stronger and has never never been a greater opportunity. Okay, well, thank you, and um, thank you, Chairman. I yield back. And thank you. And now we are at the part of this hearing where the ranking member and I would like to give some closing remarks, and then I'd like to thank you and um, each of our CEOs. So we'll start with you, ranking member, and then myself, <coughs> and then the thank yous. Well, thank you, Chairman. 
Um, and thank you, witnesses, for bearing with us as we talk about these complex issues today. Uh, the last thing we need as we sort through these complexities and related proposals are baseless and sensationalized claims. <clears throat> so I hope that the facts, the science, and the level heads will prevail <clears throat> as we move forward. <clears throat> Excuse me. So thank you all for uh, helping to bring that to the table today. And with Mr. Chairman, I, I yield back. Thank you so much. Well, I can't thank you enough for this hearing. It's very important. And it was very important to have the CEOs here because we need your help. We're faced with a very serious problem and a very serious threat to our food security. And this is why I wanted to make sure that we had the CEOs here. We cannot go and solve this problem without it. We have an equation here where we're having the meat packers who are making soaring profits in the middle of this supply chain. But we're having at the beginning of it our farmers and ranchers, and you heard the statistics, 17,000 cattle ranchers getting out of the business every year, as Ms. Spanberger pointed out. Our committee is tr having to deal with this, and we need your help. And this has been a plaintiff plea because of the role and the decision-making capacity. As I outlined earlier in my remarks, the solution to this problem rests with three components that we have to solve. First of all, the high prices that our consumers are now paying for the beef. And then the, discrete, the decreasing share a profit that our ranchers are having. And as you noted from this, just the agonizing testimony, several have raised the issue of committing suicide. So we've got to solve this problem. And the hearing also had to have and this is the reason I wanted the CEOs to make sure they were here. These accusations of antitrust behavior, of overcompetition, you know what they are. <coughs> it was very important to have the CEOs here to go on the record that they have not had the agreements. However, we put the chart up to show that this escalation of your huge profits started well before COVID-19. In 2015, this is why it was important for you all to be here. Now the question is, going forward, what is the solution? that will lower prices for the consumers and once again allow our cattle ranchers 
to earn a fair return. We've got to do that. The CEOs I'm asking is to be partners with our committee as we put together this bipartisan piece of legislation to address this issue. And I also am very appreciative of President Biden and our American Rescue Plan. They've started some of the progress. They included $1 billion in funding to support new independent meat processors. That's an important step. But we've got to do more. And as I said, as chairman of the House Agriculture Committee, I'm working now on bipartisan legislation to correct these market imbalances, reduce the overconcentration of consolidation and anti-competitive market behavior, and determine where there is any antitrust behavior. It's very important to help you all erase this blot off your record. You said it's not true. We need to make sure that we have the public's confidence that it's not true so that we can also do that other thing of make sure our families can go to that grocery store and not see their prices of meat go up 18% in a year. So that's why we want to thank you for that. Now, here's what we need to do. I believe, first, we need to go through a thorough investigation of the meatpacking industry's practice with your cooperation. There have been efforts on both sides of the political spectrum to call for this inquiry. You heard the comments on both sides of the committee about this question. We've got to make sure it is answered. My friend from Georgia, our former agriculture um, secretary, Sonny Perdue, a good friend, He was chairman of the Senate, and I was chairman of our Senate Rules Committee for 10 years in Georgia. He started the first investigation with the Justice Department into anti-competitive practices. So this is not a Democrat or Republican. We're all working on this together. There's also been 11 Democratic and Republican state attorneys general have requested an investigation from the Justice Department into anti-competitive practices. That's why it was important that I had you all here, because this reaches right into your area of executive policy decisions. We had Republican senators who have also written letters asking the Justice Department to investigate allegations of price fixing 
with our meat packers. This is what is on the table before us, not just you. We have to respond to it in Congress. But I wanted to make sure that before we move with legislation, that we had the ranchers and the CEOs in because you all, the two of you, have got to be partners in helping us find the right legislative solution. I'm very pleased also that President Biden's administration agrees and he has announced that his administration will be coordinating the investigations in our U.S. Department of Agriculture and our U.S. Justice Department. But also, there is a very important role for us in Congress to do. And that is, as you all may remember, we passed the uh, rescue plan and we were able to put that money in, but we want to do quite a bit more. And so I just wanted to share with you all, we're in this together. We got a huge problem. 17,000 cattle ranchers getting out of the business and it's structured in a family basis and their next generation of family, their sons, their daughters, are saying they're not going to do it. This is a direct threat on the security of the food supply of the greatest nation on earth. We cannot and we must not let that happen. We've got to do it together. You, the meat packers, the ranchers, and us here in Congress, so that our American people will be able to afford and enjoy this bountiful agriculture gift that God Almighty has blessed us with. And so I thank you from the bottom of my heart for you all coming and helping, and I look forward to working with you as we develop the legislative fix to this great challenge. Thank you all very much for being here. God bless you. And Mr. David McClendon with Cargo, thank you. And again, I want to compliment you on helping and addressing the issues facing our African-American farmers. And to you, Mr. Tim Shell Pepper of JBS, your comments and your insight was very helpful. And Mr. Tim Klein of the National Beef Association, uh, thank you. And I thank you for coming in person. Thank you. And to Mr. Donnie King with Tyson, thank you also. Thank all of you. 
And I also want to thank my great staff under the direction of Miss Ann Simmons and Miss Ashley Smith. They have really put together a tremendous hearing here. And I want to also single out Daniel Feingold and Leslie McNett, for they really helped me at this great opportunity as chairman of this extraordinary committee. And so now I must read this. Under the rules of the committee, the record of today's hearing will remain open for 10 calendar days to receive additional material and supplementary written responses from the witnesses to any questions posed by a member. And with that, this hearing of the committee is now adjourned. Thank you.